Happy Friday, guys, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Dubs. I'm your host, Bill T. Well, another Friday, another podcast. This one's a long one, and it's a good one. There's been a lot of, there's always been a lot of mixture between culture and the hobby and all that stuff, and I'll get into that in just a minute, but I wanted to remind you guys that One Crazy Weekend is coming up. It's 60 days away for One Crazy Weekend. Why is that important? Well, we've already sold out 180 room nights, so... This thing's going to be a banger. We're 60 days out. Tons of people pre-registered. Tons of uh, people in the car show. And uh, I mean, there's just so much stuff going on. So you want to make sure you go to letstalkdubs.com and register now. Uh, At some point, we're going to have to, I think we're going to have to limit the cars to ride around 250 cars for the car show in and of itself. But uh, at this point, I'm going to make some, I'll make some additional room if I need to. That's not a problem. I just want to make sure that you guys don't miss out on this weekend. It's it's starting to form into being one of the most anticipated events of the year. Uh, lots of stuff going on, and it's just going to be a good time. It's it's probably the best weekend you're going to have in your Volkswagen because you're going to drive your Volkswagen. You're going to hang out. You're going to meet a lot of people. You're going to chill at the hotel. There's all kinds of inter, intermixing with life and Volkswagens this weekend, October 6th and 7th at the Orleans Hotel Casino. So one of our main sponsors, Finley Volkswagen, Nevada Off-Road Buggy, SoCal Speed Shop, Sunkiss Graphics, Ross Wolf, The Wagon, and more to come, I'm sure. I've really been pushing for sponsors for the event because it's been working out where it's kind of a self-sustaining event. But if any any of you guys out there are interested in sponsoring the event, by all means, feel free to reach out to me, Bill at letstalkdubs.com. Let me know how you want to sponsor the event and we'll help produce some of your merch for people for maybe some raffles or something like that but it's going to be a great event uh it's it's a non-stop weekend of pure chaos and fun and chaos and fun is what we're all about man so don't forget to support our sponsors vw trends magazine a magazine for the people by the people not the same old stuff air cooled water cooled and tons of how to's subscribe to that I just got my recent issue th- this week and you'll get yours as soon as you, as soon as you subscribe to vwtrendsmagazine.com. So go to the website vwtrendsmagazine.com. Also one of the sponsors for the show. So don't forget that you need some parts for your Volkswagen. You want some stuff that's cool, that's built, that's quality, and that is really designed by people that are into Volkswagens. People with a CAD background, people with a design background. We'll go check out Ross Wolf. Ross Wolf, some of the highest quality aftermarket parts available for Volkswagens today. VW parts made by VW people, hardcore enthusiasts. Check them out at rosswolf.com. Get yourself a Viton sump plate gasket, a locking dipstick, or some bus deck lid hinges. So check them out today at rosswolf, that's wolf with a u.com. Now it's time for a couple shout outs. You get a shout out on Let's Talk Dubs by supporting the podcast by picking up some merch or leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. First shout out goes to Chad White Knight who picked up some merch. Appreciate you for supporting. Also, Daniel Eason for supporting the podcast by picking up some merch as well as my guy Juan Hernandez. Guys, I appreciate you supporting the podcast and I look forward to seeing some of you guys here in Vegas for one crazy weekend. So don't forget, book your rooms now. I had a few more rooms released. 15 more rooms were getting put on uh, for the next couple of days. So make sure you lock up your rooms, uh, get that situated. And, um, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Once you run out of the room block, they kick up the rate a little bit. So you won't want to get caught on that end. But either way, it's going to be worth it. So make sure you guys come check out one crazy weekend. And if you've been thinking about doing a review on apple podcast i'll leave a link down the description below so you guys can do that as well as a copy and pasteable link 
for your group text, all your friends, that you can share the show. It'll be titled Share the Show. Copy and paste that link in your group text. Doesn't matter what kind of phone they have. It'll send them to my main podcast page, and they'll be able to download and listen. So make sure you send it to your friends and say, hey, guys, by the way, this is my favorite episode, and pick one of any of the few hundred episodes that we've been putting out for you guys. I appreciate the support. Don't forget to go subscribe to my YouTube channel. There'll be some stuff coming out on there soon. And go support George T at The Wagon. We're so close to getting 1,000 subscribers. Get George out there. He's putting on some really cool how-to videos. He's at The Wagon. I'll put a link to his YouTube page down in the description. So make sure you click that link and subscribe to George's YouTube channel today. So big news coming up this week. We just got the podcast we did with Dave Kindig from Bitchin' Ride. So you guys may have seen the TV show. Well, let me tell you a little something. If you listen to the podcast with Eric already, you know that Dave Kindig is an OG VW dude. So he was cool enough to come on the podcast. That one will also be a YouTube premiere for you guys to check out. I actually have video of that one. So that'll be exciting. That one's coming out next week. But this week's podcast is not to be missed. This week's podcast is proof of how cars and culture are intertwined. Eric Meyer, if you're not familiar with the name, Eric's an OG from way back. His first Volkswagen he got in like 1975. In the mid-90s, early 90s, late 80s, he was really heavy in the VW scene. He's one of the first employees for Vision Streetwear. Matter of fact, the first employee for Vision Streetwear. Uh, he had a passion for fashion and design. Uh, and at some point, he put it all on the line, sold off his Carmen Gias, and started Simple Shoe Company. It's a rad story. He's got so much that is behind the scenes. And we talk a lot about culture on this podcast, a lot about you know what was going on in the 80s and 90s, skate culture, um, you know, so much of what transpired back then and it weaves in and out of Volkswagen talk and we wrap up the end of it with what he's been working on lately, what's in his collection and some of this, some of this really cool detail that uh, we can only get from some of these guys that have been the scene from back in the day. And, uh, you know, you might not even know, right? So these guys that you may, may or may not have heard of at this point, they're all staples in the VW scene and they've all contributed a healthy amount not only to the scene, but as you'll see on this one, to culture that we have from when we were younger. So I'm super excited to bring it to you because I, I kind of geek out on getting some of this history that that although we start out as a VW guys, you know, there's a lot of other things that we're doing in our lives and how some of us VW guys are out there making moves and pushing things and influencing uh, fashion and and culture and hobby and all that stuff through what we do and what we enjoy. So this is a really great podcast. I know you guys are going to love it. I love doing it. We loved it so long. We were on the phone for two hours, man. So we just had a great conversation. There's so much to hear on this thing. So I know you won't be sorry. Matter of fact, I know you won't be sorry to the point where you'll go put a five-star review on Apple Podcasts because I haven't gotten some reviews in about a month, guys. Let's get some reviews so I can give some shout-outs so you can hear your name over the airwaves and know that you kick down for your boy Bill T to get me some grassroots growth for the podcast. So I'm excited to bring this one to you guys. This week's podcast, Eric Meyer, Vision Streetwear, Simple Shoes, and Hardcore VW Enthusiast on Let's Talk Dubs. You probably don't know that there's a new Volkswagen out that doesn't look like a Volkswagen.
Okay, everybody. So on today's show, we've got a character in the VW world that I've been trying to pin down for a while. He's up in Northern California. And a lot of you guys have been in the scene for a long time, would know and be familiar with this uh, particular individual. Uh, Eric Myers, his name. And you may know him because he's the guy uh, that started Simple Shoes and he sold his Carmen Gias and he's a hardcore VW enthusiast, has been in the VW scene for years. Matter of fact, was in it from day one. And uh, I'm excited to have him on the podcast to get his story and to get all the history that pertains to all things VW and our culture and everything. So, Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for, for having me. Uh, yeah, I started on day one. You know, my dad was a, a contractor and a design build architect guy. And, and so he always had trucks. And in the 50s, the Volkswagen dealer in San Luis Obispo was uh called luxinger motors and they the first trucks they got in nobody was buying and so my dad made a deal with the owner and he got the first truck they ever sold in san Luis, which was a 57 single cab and i was born in 62 and that was how i, I came from home from the hospital when i was little i uh, was in a, a single cab 62 vw so you could say it started early for sure. Yeah, no, that that's cool. So, you know, and so my my cursory understanding of you is I, I remember going to the Pomona swap meet uh, way back in the day, and I can't remember if there was people that I knew that knew you or you know because going to the swap meets over and over, you kind of see people from Northern California, Southern California, and I'm and I'm from Southern Nevada, so I'd go there occasionally, and I just remember seeing some of the ads for Simple Shoes. And saying, you know, it, I think you, did you even have some models of shoes named after Volkswagens? Uh, some of the colors, like we used L512 as one of our colors, which is velvet green. And only VW guys would know that it was done that way on purpose. Right. And it was only specifically like bus guys would know because L512 velvet green is only a color you see on buses. And so, yeah, there's a lot of nuance in, in some of that, but. I did some ads that talked, we had a shoe called the Barney, which we called the transporter in Hoppy W's. And uh, that we did an ad that was really aimed at bus enthusiasts, sort of this lingo. I'll, I'll get, I can talk about that in more detail later, but the, yeah. the, the ads are really subliminal for aimed at, at the target audience that we were selling very deep. Now, so typically the way we start this, the podcast is, is, we start off with what's your VW story and, and how did you get into Volkswagens? What's, what's the first Volkswagen you purchase and you start to get into the hobby as an enthusiast? Okay. So I was 13 years old, uh, 1975 and my dad wanted me to learn how to be able to, to work on cars. So he bought me a really screwed up 65 deluxe bus. $300 we spent for that bus, which is, it's, a, it's a 65 deluxe, which these days is unheard of. But uh, it had a blown tranny and no engine. And by the time I was 16, I had rebuilt the tranny and, the, and I found an engine and rebuilt it and had it running. So it was a 65 deluxe uh, and uh, I put a Westphalia interior in it. So it was a deluxe with a Westphalia interior, which is kind of a trip. And it was all crusty and rusty. Even nine years old, you know, 60, in 1975, that bus was nine, nine years old. It was already rusted out because I think it came from Pennsylvania or someplace. So I had to learn how to weld. I had to learn how to do Bondo. And I couldn't afford to paint it because I was pretty poor. And so I just painted waves on the side with my airbrush because I was an art student. And I had my surfboards in the back. And I had a VW Beetle, too. I had a... Uh, a Super Beetle, a 71 Super Beetle, which is like almost like a brand new car. It's like buying a 2015 something. 
or other now, you know, I was only a few years old. And my girlfriend at the time, I dated this girl that worked in an ice cream shop and, and uh, I had also dated the other girl that worked in the same ice cream shop. So whenever I showed up in the bus, the one girl would, uh, versus the super beetle, the one girl would look at the other girl and go, uh-huh, tonight, mm, the bus. Mm. And there was a lot of innuendo. <laughs> That's too awesome. So my, yeah, my first, and I had a, we had a little VW club here in town that I started up, which we, I think we called San Luis Strasse Capers, Street Bugs. This is in the 70s. And it was all like, you know, cow style bugs or bugs. It was at the beginnings of the sort of Euro style where everybody was painting the bumpers on their 68 and later to, to, the, to the same color as the body. And the cars were all 135s on the front and 185s in the back and Rivieras. We hadn't really gotten into Fuchs. Nobody could afford Fuchs. So right. it was all just like Rivieras or those little empty wheels and a bunch of high school kids and college kids because it was a cheap car back then. And you grew up in a... But that, that's the beginnings of it. And you grew up in a beach city, right? Yeah, Morro Bay, uh, California, which is Central California, halfway between LA and SF. And and with you, kind of kind of skateboarding and all that stuff, like you're right in the epicenter of where all that's coming from. Yeah, yeah. And one of the yeah, I started skating then. Yeah, and so you started skating, and you were like a, a local sponsored kid. Yeah, yeah, I started it uh, probably around 19. I was probably. I don't know, nine, eight or nine years old. I'm guessing. I can't remember exactly. You know, elementary school, Black Knight, clay wheels, that kind of crap. And then skateboarding evolved, uh, and the earthing happened, and and vert happened, the ramps happened, and yeah, I was a sponsored, a sponsored am. I rode for a local skate park in the '70s. I rode for the local surf shop. You know, nothing big, big time. But in Central Cal, we're kind of remote. You know, all the heavy skating was in either in Los Angeles, like Venice or in San Diego with Gordon Smith crew or up in Northern Cal, San Jose and North up to San Francisco with the whole Thrasher magazine and NHS crowd, it's a different crowd. But in central California, we're just a little island with no real skateboard companies. So anybody who was really good here never really competed with the heavy pro heavy skaters from Southern and Northern California, Northern California, unless we traveled a lot. Uh, but it was a good scene here, just small. And how much, obviously, a lot of that influenced you because, so, you, you know, you build your first bug, you build your first bus and your bug while you're working. And then you, when, when do you design, like you start out young knowing that you've got a flair for art and design and things like that? It's a, yeah, I mean, even as a little kid, I loved art. And I studied, as I, as when I graduated from, from high school, I studied um, graphic design, commercial art, uh -huh. and I studied architecture a little bit. Uh, but just to back up a tiny bit, when I was, uh, for a brief moment in time, my mom and I lived in San Clemente, California, Southern California. And uh, I was in skating down there, and skating was a lot bigger scene down there. Mm -hmm. But I was only there for a year or so. But down in San Clemente, um, I was at high school one day, and this girl came up to me, her name is Nagmar, which is, a, I, re, I remember her, she was really cute, but the name sucked. And she uh, she said, are you a motocross racer? And, and I, which to me was like, what the heck? There's no way, I, I don't want anybody to think I'm a motocross motorcycle guy, because I was thinking I was a cool skateboard surfer guy, right? right. But this is like early 70s, mid, mid 70s, 70, I'm gonna say 74, something like that. 
And uh, this girl said, this girl says, I look like a motorcycle racer. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And then she kind of went, huh, okay, you look like a motorcycle racer. Oop, I just, you, no, you just dropped. Good. There you are. Uh, uh, and uh, so at that point in time, I realized, damn, because at that point in time, skateboarders did, when you think about it, we were wearing uniforms. The pro skaters were wearing like matching outfits and stuff. If you think about the GNS team or you think about the Sims team, they had these really sort of colorful matching outfits. And, and suddenly I realized that is lame. It's so lame. And we're wearing socks with the little stripes on them, you know, the little sport socks with like red and blue stripes. And all of our vans were either, you know, different colors sort of team matched with the socks. And, and I realized, oh, this is stupid looking. Right. And so I started, I started at that point in time, that girl, Dagmar, changed my perceptions of, I needed to look like a skateboarder. I didn't want to look like anything else. And, and skateboarders didn't have, you know, you could, you could walk down the street and you could point out a cowboy because he had the belt buckle and the Wranglers and he had boots. And you could point out a guy in a football because he was wearing a jersey relative to his football team or a basketball guy because he had the big puffy shoes and he had a jersey or he had, but you couldn't point out a skateboarder unless he had a skateboard with him. He was either, a, looked like a surfer, which is really flowery and fluffy and happy and too, too kind of hippie, for lack of a better word, too. Right too bright and happy and skaters are always a little bit more kind of gnarly and a little bit more individuals and not so much team, at least on the local level, they weren't team related other than like the ones you saw competing in a contest. And so I, there's a few, a few skaters who I looked at like Rick DeMontrand is Spidey. I don't know if you've heard of Spidey, but Spidey had a really, has a really cool style still and had one then. And a few skaters, there was this crossover between punk rock and skate and new wave. And that style wasn't really well represented as a clothing statement. And that kind of started adjusting at that. And I started cutting out, we would go to the fish store and buy old man pants and we'd cut the old man pants off long. So we made really long shorts because back then it was all OP shorts. If you remember like really yeah. high up on your thigh and yeah. looking at them now, it's like, Oh my God, it looks like, you know, $6 million man sort of stuff. <laughs> And, and they just too short and a little bit too, I don't know what the right word is, 70s. And yeah. So we started making our own stuff and we started, you know, just simultaneous to this, there's a huge music scene going on in, in this sort of alternative new wave, new romantic. The goth hadn't happened yet. You know, it was still punk rock and new wave going on pretty, and that influenced I think the fashion of skateboarding more than anybody knows. And, and this is long before vision street or Olympies or skate rags or any of the early skate brands. This is well, not long before, but let's say two or three years before. Right. Well, I, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because I remember my first exposure to, uh, to punk rock was, it was 1984. And, and um, I, some, some guy had given me a Sims, Burt Lamar, and they were listening to this, this music. I'm like, dude, what is that? And they're listening to it, the guy made me a mixtape and it had killing joke and the surf punks on it. Like couldn't be oh, yeah, two, yeah. two polar opposite bands. Right. But it was just like, it was this cool music. And my sisters were lame because they were listening to Depeche mode. That was like, you know, quote unquote girls music. It wasn't hardcore enough. And then I see, I see the first vision skates video. And that for me, where where it's, and I think that was the name of it, right? Vision Skates, and uh, that Agent Orange is the entire soundtrack for that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that just, yeah. What's interesting is how something's kind of cobbled together, just lights a fuse 
for a whole segment of the youth, right? And and I think probably a lot of people got turned on. Oh, totally, totally. I got, I mean, the first band I saw was 1987 at a gig here in Las Vegas. I was 13 years old in 87, because we're about 10 years difference. I was, I was, it was my 13th or 14th yeah. birthday. And it was the day after my birthday, it was June 7th. And I saw Agent Orange and uh, Social Distortion. And I was like fanboying big time. Like, man, I can't believe these, these guys are huge and they're here. And like, you know, meanwhile, they're just, a, they're not a very big band, but just to some select group. Yeah. And what was so interesting is I remember. Mike, Mike Ness. Yeah. Oops, sorry. Mike Ness lives right near, lives right near me. Oh, really? He lives up in that area, huh? Yeah. Well, you know, and what, I think it's a second home. Well, what's so cool is is how much influence that skateboarding had on fashion. Because I, I remember distinctly one time, Mark Gonzalez wearing a 7-Eleven smock from 7-Eleven. And, and it was like that cross-culture made it so cool. It was like the lamer the clothes, the cooler they were type of thing. Yeah. And what was interesting is there was really, there wasn't very many people cause I'm a few years behind, right? I'm, I'm getting into it in 86, 87, you know, in, in those kind of years. And, and early in, in the, in 84, I'm living in Texas before we moved back here to Vegas on the West coast. And you know, when, when you start, all I know is vision street where I don't know where it's like, Oh man, they got everything. You've got a connection to Vision Streetwear. You're actually the first employee, is that right, for, for Vision Street? Now, yeah. how, how does that come about? Okay, so I graduated from art school, from from graphic design in 1984 and uh, 85, depending on who you ask, because <laughs> it was a long, long, slow last year. Right. And in 80, early 85, I think I still had like a few credits that I needed to get to get my diploma. But I, I was writing a letter, uh, thinking about where I was going to go with a job. And I wrote a letter to Brad Dorfman because Brad Dorfman owned Vision Sports. Vision Streetwear didn't exist yet. He owned Vision Sports. And I wrote him this. And he had some T-shirts and stuff. And they were making these shorts uh, out of canvas, which are all in these fluffy, happy surf colors, pinks and yellows and greens. And it was like, oh, dude, these suck so hard. But it could be so good, you know. And he, they had invented punk skull, punk skull pattern. Remember the punk skull pattern? Yeah, it's a bunch of skulls. Andy, it, well, yeah, similar. But uh, don't, don't even get me started on them. Um, <laughs> the, 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 uh, those, that pattern was designed by Andy Takaxian. And, and Andy had done the gator pattern with a spiral. Anyway, um, I wrote him this letter and said, you know, skaters don't want to look like surfers. Your stuff is lame. Stop. You know, turn turn that off, turn that hose off because before it gets started, because you're you're going down the same rabbit hole of like catch it and gotcha. And it's just a little too fluffy and happy. And it's not it's not street orientated, it's beach colors. Get the fuck out of beach, pardon me, <laughs> but get out of beach, you know. And I, and I and I wrote this letter. I actually have a copy of the letter still of the draft. I didn't keep the copy of the real letter because it's back then, right? I mailed the letter. So I don't have that letter, but I do have the the, the prototype of it which is pretty interesting to read because there's some mistakes in it. But anyway, um, he got that letter and he invited me down to, to visit them. And then I explained to him, you know, you need to take images of gravel and images of, of, of negative, you know, it's just not all skating isn't fluffy and happy and peace signs, you know, it's, right. it's hardcore. It's, 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 it's gnarly. It's, it's interesting. It's barbed wire, you know, it's asphalt. And, uh, he, he was listening, but he didn't call me back right away. So I ended up getting in my bus 
and I drove down to Orange County. You know, we're about four hours away from Orange County where I live, and I, I lived in my bus down there looking for work. And so I, I got a job for a vacuum cleaner company called Ricar, helping them with our marketing. It was a really stupid company. But I needed money because I was, you know, new out of school, and so I'm living in my bus, and 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 I, I would go to the the Orange County Register, which is the newspaper there, and there's this ad from this vacuum cleaner company, and I went to the vacuum cleaner company address. Mind you, I would go to get the newspaper at four in the fucking morning. Pardon me again, <laughs> and and uh, the the. Uh, the, the presses are still running and the newspaper boys are coming to get the papers and so forth. And I got, so I've got the ads early. So I, I, I show up at the, the company, Ricard, the vacuum cleaner company. I'm in the parking lot at like seven, having read the ad and I'm parked in the first space and up comes this Mercedes four door parks right next to me. He looks over at me and he says, you see that sign in front of you? That says, I don't remember his name. That's my, you're parked in my space. I'm like, Oh, sorry, dude. Backed out, moved over parked in the visitor space. And then he's like, well, what are you, what are you doing here? I'm here about the ad. What ad? Well, the ad about, they want a graphic designer. Oh, I just placed that ad last night. I'm not ready to interview anybody. He says, <laughs> so, uh, I, 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 I got, I said, okay, well, he says, come back later and talk to my secretary when she gets here at nine and we'll make an appointment. And so I went away and uh, it was, you know, it was early in the morning, like seven. I went back to the motel and I typed up some questions. I could tell that he didn't know anything about art. So I typed up some questions about how to interview an artist and blah, blah, blah. And I went back and, and uh, he actually told me to come the next day. He didn't tell me to come later in the day. But I went back the same day at like 11. And he goes, what are you doing here? I told you to come tomorrow at nine. And I said, well, I could tell you didn't know what you were talking about with the art thing. So I made up this <laughs> list of questions. And I, here's how to interview an artist. And these are the kinds of things you, you should be asking. And he, he looks at me and he's like, come here. And he sits me down on the desk opposite him. And, he, and you know, mind you, as an art student, you spent four years preparing a portfolio, right, to show your, your wares to the, to the, to the prospective uh, employers. And he goes, you got the job. I'm like, you haven't even seen my portfolio. He's like, I don't care about your portfolio. You're a really proactive cat, you know, and we're going to do this. So, so long story short is I'm working there about three months and Brad uh, calls me out of the blue. He calls me at this place at Ricard vacuum cleaners. I'm like, how the hell did you get my number? He goes, well, I called your mom up in Morro Bay. <laughs> and and I let's, he says, I'm ready to do this. And, uh, and, and my, this is 85, right? So uh, I, uh, I, I was making like 30 grand a year and I fresh out of college at this, at this vacuum cleaner company. And so Brad, Brad says, come on, I'm ready to do it. And, and he's all, what are you making there? And I'm like, like click, 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 click. I said, well, I'm making 60 grand. <laughs> I lied. And he goes, come on, I'll give you 75. Let's go. We got to do this. This is going to rock. And so I'm like, you know, 23 years old, <laughs> yeah. I immediately doubled my salary plus. I'm like, oh, this is great. <laughs> right, it's huge. So that's how, that's how, that's Vision, and Vision Streetwear at that point in time was just the t-shirts made by Vision were called Vision Streetwear. It was just a logo inside the t-shirts and Greg Evans had designed that logo. Uh, and, and then we, I told him, look, Vision Streetwear has got to be something completely different than how you started. And, and he killed it as it was. And we started over again uh, with, with what we did, was, which was something other than surf, something to identify. So a kid walking down the street could point out a skateboarder like you could point out a cowboy or a football player or, or a motocross guy. And, and, and that was and, the whole point. And what's interesting is, is you referenced earlier how, what was that girl's name again? 
Dagmar. Dagmar. <laughs> D-A-G-M-A-R. But interestingly enough, from, from that one meeting with Dagmar and you reflecting on like, well, we look like lame like Olympian team members. We're not team members. Like skateboarding is an individual expressive type thing, but there is kind of a vibe and a look to it. Yeah. And and from that, from that, so that's the Dagmar effect. Is that what we're calling <laughs> But I mean, like the whole thing... <laughs> Uh, well, nobody else really knows that story. But but I mean, it, it creates this evolution where you really reflect on it and you think like, man, just like Volkswagens, right? Volkswagens are a, this universal platform that everybody has, but there's so much individuality in the hobby. And, it's, and, and that's why I think you can see that same influence in skateboarding that although things that come from you – you know, for, from your personal desire, like I don't want to be confused with a motocross ride or something because I'm wearing this striped shirt that the other dude's wearing and we look like we're on some kind of team, you know. So I, I find that really interesting how that evolves because, you know, the, 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 the culture of the music of that time, you can see undertones of that in the wear, you know, the, the Jimmy Z pants, the, the, all those types of things. Now, at this time, who are the major brands? Because Brad Dorfman, he, um, I don't know the guy. I've, I've listened to him on a few podcasts. I don't know if he's got any connection to Volkswagens at all, but I know that he had a lot to do with with some of the, um, especially radical commercialization of skateboarding, right? And some people love it or hate it. It doesn't matter. It helped make it explode to some degree. Now, I, and I, and you would probably have more firsthand knowledge of that. Um He's also a car guy. And yeah. and I think there's a lot of that car culture where it ties into clothing and fashion and all that stuff kind of kind of melds together to some degree. Um, doing that with Vision Streetwear when you started with that and now you you're essentially starting your own fashion trend and obviously it's coming from influence that you're getting through music and culture and things to that degree. How competitive was it in those early days at Vision Streetwear with other companies? And then who's, who's because because you, you did mention something about the the Bad Boy Club, right? And you guys originally had the the pattern. Was there a lot of that stuff going on? Like, well, we got to come out with this first because someone else might take it, or people try to reinterpret everybody's I, designs. I'm not really worried. I wasn't that company. We weren't worried about it at all. They were just taking commercialization to another level. I mean, the bad boy club is essentially surf and skate, but aimed at football and basketball and the mass market. It's not aimed at the hardcore skaters or surfers at all. It's just taking some of the nuance. So St. Life's at Beach, bad boy club, no fear gear. Uh, it's all this. Those are all the same kinds of ideas. Just mass, mass market. But so the, the, those brands hardly even existed in our minds. If the companies that I was looking at back in the beginning, um, let me back up a little bit because skating is skating and the kind of music that we were listening to and the styles. I think skaters are because they're individuals for the most part, they're not competitive like the way a soccer, a soccer guy or a football guy would be. They're humble. They're humbler. And it's hard for me to put this into words, but skaters don't really care what other people think about them so much. Uh, and maybe I'm just putting words out that don't don't actually exist. But skaters wanted to be individuals, but they didn't really care if other people liked them or not. 
They just wanted to, a lot of skaters because they're individuals were also interested in art. I mean, think about Mark Gonzalez. Think about a lot of skaters are great artists. And so they, yeah. they wear what they wear because they're creatives and that creativity shows up in, 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 in the things that they choose to wear, the goofiness of, of what they wear in some ways is just because they're being silly and they want to stand out and they want, they don't give a flying hoot what anybody else says. And, and so with the, some of the beginnings of vision was just trying to understand what that meant. It didn't, I mean, other than maybe Peter Schroff, you ever heard of Peter Schroff? Peter Schroff owned, he had a company called Schroff, S-C-H-R-O-F-F. And Schroff, he's a surfer, he's from Santa Monica area. Uh, he hang out with he hung out with uh, a lot of the Z Boy sort of era guys, Dogtown Crew, um, and there's another. The back then, Stussy was just was just kind of coming out the Stussy brand in the surf culture, and sort of Stussy was the first brand to kind of mix surf with street. That's what Sean's um, genius. And so of any brand that I think we were looking at, it would have been those two brands. And then Gotcha came out with a brand called Bash real quick. And Bash was a skate brand that lasted probably less than six months that Peter Schroff designed for Gotcha. Uh -huh. And they were doing kind of what John, if you remember John Grigley's stuff, yeah. the, the art that Grigley did on his first boards in, in 85, 84, um, the old ghost stuff hadn't happened yet. It was pre-old ghost, and Grigley had that same eye. And, and if you listen to the artist, like like, well, I, I would I would listen to Mark or, or Marty Jimenez or a lot of the Vision Art guys. I think I sent you a picture of Gregory Bevington, who's otherwise known as Psycho Man mm -hmm. in house. Yeah. He's the he's the he's the origin story of Psycho Man. Oh really? Um, and then this, yeah, and then. Um, uh, uh, Andy Tikakian, another artist, more of a fine artist. There's just mix of artists and artist skateboarders that were kind of the the, the icon that I was looking at, uh, uh, and that all of us were looking at uh, to try to figure out what was going on in skate in skateboard fashion. Skateboard fashion, we didn't even think of the skateboard fashion per se yet. That kind of happened later. We didn't realize what we were doing, to be honest. I was 23 years old. The other guy, I was the old guy in the bunch. Really? And the rest of them were younger, you know, 17, 18, 19. And we had tattoo guy, um, oh, what was his name? It's a really insane artist, but he was 17, you know? And so this is all this intense art coming out of young people but without even really thinking, we're just shooting from the hip in many ways. Like if you look at what Grigley was doing, which is some of that, those little fit girls' faces and really uh, posterized uh, on his boards. And he, we did some work with him on some shirts and just did Greg Evans, who's the guy who designed the Vision Streetwear logo. Yeah. He was messing around with typography. He would put wax on the copy machine and then he would Xerox through the wax to make the edges of the type fuzzy. I don't know if you know it, like the early Vision Streetwear logo, that all the edges were sort of fuzzy and, and rough looking like a, like sort of like stone. That was because Greg was modifying type and then that style type became known within the action sports industry. And people would start, to, there's a guy named, oh shoot, he was an editor at Skateboarder Magazine, art director at Skateboarder for a while, I've forgotten his name. Um, he started doing that style typography 
And it was all just sort of blossoming at the same time. There was almost nobody we were competing with. We were just taking what people were doing. Like, you know, as a kid in high school, you scratch around in your binder, drawing pictures or drawing a skateboard or drawing a graphic for a board or just kind of doodling. That yeah. kind of art was coming out of all these, all these different characters. And what Brad was a genius at was recognizing when something was fresh. You know, the new, I mean, that's what he saw when I was doing, and that's what he saw and what Wrigley was doing, and that's what he saw with Jimenez and with Mark Gonzalez and all, all these artist skaters. Brad could, could he, he himself was not artistic. He himself was, he's kind of a Harley guy. He's really into Harleys. He could have made a zillion dollars selling Harley stuff because he was early, early, early on the retro Harley stuff. And he, he's not a VW guy, although he did buy a Volkswagen that used to be one of mine, which is funny. Oldbug.com, Randy Carlson, yeah. um, uh, sold him one of my old microbuses, which was actually in a hot VW. My red, and my, my ceiling wax red and beige gray 63 Deluxe was in hot VWs along with that Gia, I think. Yeah. Uh, that gray Gia I was talking about uh, as the simple collection. Um, and Brad bought that bus. But anyway, he, he was just good at noticing who other kids were looking at as style icons and, and it was tough because there was two there was a lot of different schools there was this sort of uh at that point in time there was kind of a freestyle school which was a little bit more colorful you know street hadn't happened yet so it was just it was vert and freestyle in the begin when i in the in early 84 85 street hadn't really other than maybe a few guys that started later a company called shut in new york there wasn't street and i mark gonzalez was the first street skater i ever really noticed as definite different than freestyle invert um but uh, i lost my train of thought there but, but the, the following the, the the freestylers had more colorful um and the vert guys were a little bit more like athletic and they were athletes and, and their stuff. And then this, but the street skaters, that's where I first started noticing a difference in the style. And I think it's because some of them were just interested in doing their own thing and they didn't want to be part of a park and they didn't want to be part of a, uh, uh, uh an affiliated skate crew. Well, I mean, I, I can tell you from my perspective, right? I, I grew up lower socioeconomic scale, got a skateboard, wasn't a BMX guy because I couldn't afford an expensive bicycle. So I had horse trade skateboards. But I think the thing that connects so much of like um, the VW uh, hobby and skateboarding and street skating is that street so skating. you got to start over. Your audio broke up. Oh. So what I think is really a, a parallel between like Volkswagen and skateboarding is that especially street skaters, street skaters are unbelievably resourceful. They'll take anything and use it as something to have fun with. Because when you were a skater, I mean, even when, when I was skating back in the 80s, if there was a half pipe in town, it was a journey to get there. You had to find somebody at a car, you had to get there, and then somebody's family had to have money or somebody was in construction to build a half pipe. But street skater, you just kind of made do of whatever was there, whether it's a drainage ditch or, you know, a big asphalt bump in the back of a parking lot for something that didn't get graded properly or those types of things. And, and I think when you're looking at the, the difference, I think that's where the explosion of street skating came in. Because now today, you look, look today in Las Vegas, I remember we had, the, the, somebody had gone in and, and dug up uh, next to the Palms Hotel and Casinos, a shopping center where that sits. There used to be a place called Desert Surf in the 70s 
Well, they later tore the thing down and it was a dirt lot and a bunch of us skaters kind of dug it out and it was basically just the freestyle area with a couple little kinks. And that was the extent of skate parks. Well, today there's a skate park literally at every recreational park in the valley. You know, there's 20 bowls and half pipes and all that stuff within a five minute walk of any place in the valley. But I think in our generation, in the, in the genesis of this, it was like the explosion of street skating came from all these different guys, whether you're from Texas or Southern California or New York, different environments, you have to adapt to skate those environments. And, you know, one of the things that, that makes me make that parallel is like, you just make do with what you have. And that's where I think the connection yeah, came. Total, total VW connection. Yeah. You know, you just kind of built like it, you just get your Volkswagen and build it. However you can, whether you're reusing all the parts or you're the guy that goes and gets everything new from a catalog or whatever it is, but there's so many different parallels. And I think it's so cool. And then meanwhile, while you're in the midst of all this, it's just your job. It's just what you're doing. You're feeling pretty fortunate because what you're putting pen to paper, it goes into publication before a while. And all this time you're still in the VWs. You're still buying and selling and doing this kind of stuff. Or you're one of the young guys who's making good money now, right? So you can kind of buy a little bit nicer of a project or are you still buying? So, so the, I can, just to back up a little, there's a, yeah. just to tie back a little bit to street skating uh, before I start off on what you just mentioned. The, the, there, there's a direct relationship between the way skaters are sort of humble in their, in their, uh, at least what I think of as humble. They, they, they're not, sh there's good skaters. And like, you could tell a guy who's a uh, uh, cool style skating. Like he's just got a style. He may not be the contest winner, but he's got style yeah. and he represents like, it's just the beauty of skateboarding. It kind of boggles your mind. you watch them. And you, th those for me, those are the ones I really love. I, I don't, I mean, I care about contests and so forth, but for me, it's the guy who's just a great skater. I just love watching and hanging out with and skating with. And it's the same thing in, in, in VW. Sometimes people will have the most elegant, like they just the detail that they do on something, a car that might, it's just a, a, a scrappy little car, but they've done it so well with no money. It's, it's, it's really a parallel for me. Uh, and then there's also, there's guys, like you say, they buy out of, a, out of a catalog and their cars are nice, whatever, they're kind of boring, but they're beautiful. And then there's some guys who go off the deep end with, like dialing in every part custom, you know, milled, you know, the GFK guys that do their like unbelievably detailed cars that are fascinating to look at, but like yeah. it would scare the hell out of me to drive every day because they're just like a coach club I had so perfect. You can hardly drive it. But, but, uh, that, that correlation is, is, uh, is pretty similar in the music scene for some reason. I don't know. They're also pretty similar between skating and, and, VWs. I haven't really, to be honest, given it a crap load of thought. It's just sort of native software running all the time. It is. It is. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's underlying. The, 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 the Vision Streetwear. Go ahead. We, uh, the trick, like Brad and I differed a lot in our perception of what would sell and what should sell. And none of us even understood the term sellout because the term sellout didn't even hardly exist yet. There was no such thing. We were probably the first company to to go so big that we sold ourselves out without even hardly realizing it was too late. By the time we realized what was going on, it was too late. But Brad, um, you know, we had lots of uh, corporate buyers, Nordstrom, et cetera, big department stores that wanted to buy from us. And so in the beginning, we were selling hardcore skate shops 
and all this all the skate mail order catalogs and so forth. But then it just started to be a real fad. Uh, the big stores came in and they wanted clothes for little kids and they wanted clothes for girls and juniors and and Brad said, okay, let's do it. And we built that stuff, but we didn't realize that when a, if you're a skater and you're 17 and you're wearing the product and then you see your little brother wearing the product, suddenly the product's lame because your little brother's wearing it or because your sister or some girl is wearing a Vision Streetwear top. He's like, oh, wait a minute, you know? And we didn't catch the, that, that that would happen. Um, but we made a crap load of money, but um, it was that was a big epiphany. And so I actually left Vision uh, in 1990, because I was, I wanted to kill all that stuff. I wanted just to stay hardcore. I wanted to start this company we call Basics, and Vision's Basics was was to be you know, more simple and more clean and hardcore shops only. But Vision by this time is a hundred million dollar company, and Brad has a lot of employees, and you know he he needs to support all this collateral equipment and people and warehouses. And so we had these kind of pretty big blowout arguments, and I left. Uh, and then, uh, in 1990, and then he, uh, six months later, I went to work for another company making kids clothes that you'll never have heard of. Uh, so long, they sold to just mass market Kmart stuff. It was called Zabioni, Spumoni. It was aimed at really low mass market Kmart stuff. But Brad then six months later, five months later in 1991 hired me back. He said, dude, I need you back. And I said, I, I don't want to do it. I hate what you're doing. And, you know, I can't deal with this. I'm not, I can't be the 17 year old hip and the 13 year old girl and the seven year old boy all at the same time. It doesn't work like that, you right, know? Right. And so he said, well, uh, you can start basics. And so I actually started a little thing within vision called basics which we had no logos. We just had, it was made out of like browns and olives and it was corduroy shorts and real simple, clean, 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 clean. No, like the Vision Streetwear that we had in the 80s, the early 80s, or the mid 80s, 85, 6, 7, was just that blowout sort of loud, bright graphics. Even though it was not the colors of surf, it was still that whole era of those sort of muscle pants and those huge logos on shirts and stuff that, it was it was interesting, but it was it was hard for me. I didn't really believe in all that huge logo stuff myself, even though we were doing it and making a ton of money. Right. It was it was very tricky, you know, and soul sucking. Yeah. Uh, to, to produce, I'm sorry to say, I enjoyed. I started making shoes. I started focusing more on the shoes and letting. We had a huge art departments, and I let uh, some of the other art departments just manage all that stuff. And I didn't let them. They did because I didn't want to. And I focused on footwear and I focused on, I did a line of clothing. Vision had the license for MTV music television back then. Yeah. And so I did the music television stuff and Vision shoes in 88, 89, 90. I was doing the, the MTV stuff and the Vision shoes and not so much uh, the clothing. Although I was still the art director, I still managed it, but it was other people doing the work because it was, it was just too big. So now during this time, you, you start with Vision, you're making a ton of money for a young kid, and you've got a VW hobby, so you're building a little bit of a collection. So you're a young guy with a, with a, a good-sized collection of cars, three, four cars that you've got, that they're nice cars. Yeah, yeah. I had a, I had a notchback, and I had uh, a really beautiful deluxe, a beautiful uh, deluxe uh, 21, and then I had a 23 
And I had a bunch of knocks. It's hard to remember who, how I, I go through cars so many, so I've been through like a hundred Volkswagen. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's hard to remember exactly what was when, but my wife was really into Carmen Gia's. And so we had a couple of Carmen Gia's. Um, I like original paint cars. So I had a couple of original paint Gia's and uh, those, those Gia's. And when I bailed from Vision the second time, but vision sort of imploded. I don't know if you remember, but Gator got Gator killed this yeah. girl, and that's a long story. I won't go there. You can go find the video and ask somewhere else. Well, so so my question is, how much of that torpedoed the brand? Did that negatively impact the brand much, or was it was or, a combination of things? You thought it was cycling the, the, out, the, like it was cycling out of fashion, and and there was. It's, it's, it's three. Skating is demographic related, right? So skaters, the. There are hardcore skaters, and then there's the beta. That's, I call those the alphas. Right. And then the betas are the <laughs> secondary skaters. The, the, the money's all in the betas, right? But the right. hardcore skaters, you, you want to rep the brand. Those are the guys you pay to wear your stuff. Uh, and the pros or the thought leaders the, the, and, and the betas, you make money. But So the, 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 the alphas will always be there, but the betas come and go with demographics. And so the demographic rise and fall, sure. you know, uh, and... Well, what I you know, know that I, around 1990 that it was falling. Yeah, I, there's I, more to it. I'm not done. Sorry, let me let me. Let me yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the uh, so Brad really loved the product. He would never discount the product because he would always sell the crap out of it. And so we had a warehouse full of shoes that he was in love with. At, at the same time as the the market demographics are falling. At the same time as Gator killed that girl. At the same time as Street is exploding and Vert is going away. And Vision's team was primarily Vert. And at the same time as Rocco was just starting to start up with his his stuff. And so there was a there was a, a thousand different things happening at the same that that killed Vision. Primarily, it was we had all the money tied up in three hundred thousand pair of shoes in oh. the warehouse that he wouldn't discount. You should have discounted, you know, 10 bucks a pop. That's 3 million bucks in your rolling capital sitting un unusable, yeah. you know? So well, it, it, it hurt him. And what's interesting is, is you see as that tidal wave starts to come around, because me personally, from my demographic, 1988 or 89, I get my first car. I have a GNS Chris Miller with the long spoon nose with the dog on the bottom. That skateboard goes mm -hmm. in the trunk of my car and now I have a job. I have no time to skate anymore because now I figured out I can exchange my time for money and I start focusing on pursuing things that I want. And I'm getting, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm I think I'm mm -hmm. 17 years old or 18 years old. And I remember that that was the last skateboard that I actually rode like on a daily was my GNS Chris Miller. And it was like, I was getting out of it because I was getting a little bit older. And then as that's plus girls, yeah, plus girls. And then what you have happening is you have the anti, there's this whole anti-corporate move happening in skateboarding that Rocco kicks yeah. off. And so so I, I totally get what you're saying. So you see it starting to crumble and you're like, you know what, by the way, I'm out of here. I'm going to go start my own thing. What what was your what was your motivation? Like when you left, you thought, I, I'm going to fix this. And, you know, I've, I what's interesting to me is I've had several people work for me. One guy bought a silkscreen machine. He was he worked in my office for me, and he says, "Hey, can I use the warehouse in the evening to make shirts?" I said, "Sure." The machine sat there for one. I said, "What are you not making shirts for?" He says, "Well, I've got, uh, you know, you got to have money to make money, Bill." I said, "Well, didn't you tell me you've got some huge record collection?" I said, "Why don't you just sell the record collection for your startup money and get going?" He goes, "Dude." 
there's no way I'm selling that record collection. And I said to him, I said, well, then clearly you don't believe that you can do it because if you believe you could do it, you'll buy 10 times the records on the backside. You know, so that's a pretty, yeah. that's a pretty big move to make, take these cars that we have that are like, they say you, fortune, you know, well, go ahead. Yeah. but it's, you know, it's one of those things where vision we had, we go ahead. Brad was a brilliant entrepreneur and he would jump off deep and to be able to work under him and watch how he worked was really educational. And he had a saying, which is somebody else's saying, but it's fortune favors the bold. We actually did a t-shirt that said that fortune favors the bold. And, and you're absolutely right. If you are not willing to sacrifice, you're not, you're not going to, you have to jump off the cliff. And if you don't jump off the cliff, it's never going to happen. And it's, and, and, and that first step where you start to fall is almost impossible. Once you start falling though, then you're really you're like, Oh crap, I got to start flapping my wings now. And so you start really kicking ass and taking names and watching Dorfman do that over and over and over. And occasionally he'd fall on his face, but most of the time he did. Okay. You know, like if you're, if you do good more than you do, than you fail, you're going to make it, but you have to, you have to be willing to fail. Now, before uh, and, we and jump, that was it. Before we jump into simple, you showed me a prototype of uh, a plastic little skateboard. Is that before? Is yeah. That, is that while you're at Vision? Yeah. So I, I was making keychains and sunglasses and hats and all sorts of accessories for Vision Streetwear. And um, there was this guy uh, who had this company called Somerville. And Somerville was making keychains for us. And he had these surfboard keychains that he was making for town and country. And it was a piece, a piece of plastic with a piece of paper embedded in the middle. It said TNC or it said you know, Maui and Sons or a couple of different companies he was making them for. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Can you make a skateboard like that, a skateboard keychain? And he's all, well, why don't you draw something up? So I drew up a little idea, which is a plastic piece of plastic, you know, with a plastic trucks and plastic axles. And the axles had a little diagonal slit in them. So the, you remember how Hot Wheels have those little axles in them? Yeah. So the, the, the Hot Wheels axle was our prototype. And the Hot Wheels axle went through the slit. It was diagonal inside the, the truck. I have the board here somewhere if you want me to go grab it. It's, it's downstairs. Oh, I got the picture. Second. I have the picture right. here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that, so that, so that, that, um, the board, if you if you leaned on it, it would turn because the axles weren't up diagonally through the slot in the in the hanger. And uh, so anyway, we made those, and I hadn't even really ever seen fingerboarding. I didn't know fingerboarding. Fingerboarding was happening. People were doing it, but it wasn't big at all. The the fact that these keychains became fingerboards was a freaking fluke. We, it was just because skaters were making them out of popsicle sticks and stuff on their right. own with old Hot Wheels and miscellaneous toys, but it wasn't a thing. There was nobody publicizing it. It didn't. It just kids did it in their cereal bowl at home because they're bored and as Boy Scouts or whatever. We knew how to whittle, and so people were making them. And and I didn't even know that at the time. Uh, this just happened. That whole fingerboard, but that 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 board you have the photo of is the first was in the museum actually. Jack Smith's skateboard museum up in Morro Bay here for, for a long time, although he's closing this, that, that board's going to the Smithsonian to really? be honest. I, I've been asked to, to give it to the Smithsonian, but, uh, uh, it's that whole fluke was 
totally just a fluke. But yeah, we sold bazillions and bazillions <laughs> of those boards. I think they cost us 40 cents each and we sold four bucks or something. I forget what it was, but it was insane. And, and I that, think I mean, that's the interesting part of design and what you do, right? Some things you're going to pour your heart and soul into and they flop. And some things you just look at it and go, yeah, cool, approve it, send it off. And it just explodes. And it's like, yeah. you know, it's like trying to catch lightning in a bottle, right? You're trying to figure out what it is that's going to take off the next thing. But then in this culture, there's also that level of quote unquote street cred is what I call it. Or I'm more punk than you, or I heard the band first, or when the band gets commercialized, it's no longer cool. Just like we talked about, you know, when, when this 13 mm -hmm. year old girls wearing vision streetwear mm -hmm. stuff, it's like, yeah, this is lame. This stuff's going in the trash, but you know, from the, the, the standpoint of design and especially when you're on the, the, the forefront of the counterculture movement that then becomes the mainstream, you know, that's you kind of got to a point, I'm assuming in your career where you're kind of worn out with that. And you're like, you know what? I've seen Brad do it. I'm going to go for it on my own. Well, the eighties were also over, right? The eighties in the eighties, caution tape and bright loud colors and fluorescent that was all new and fun and interesting it hadn't been sold out or made lame yet you know even stucy made fluorescent shirts you know they're all they were they were they were cool that was cool like that whole new wave look was what the cool kids wore or the punk rock look was a little bit more gnarly version of of what the cool kids wore and and but then in the in the in 1990 that was suddenly like old like Ugh, you know you're kind of burned out on it the, 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 the door had shut on that style. And so the, what people were all wearing then was, was a reaction to the oversold logo. They, nobody wanted to wear a logo at all. Yeah. And, and so the, in the nineties, like the, what happened later became known as norm core. Are you familiar with the term norm core? <laughs> norm core, norm core was just, you know, it's, it's something that 10, 15 years ago was, was an out, was a outgrowth of what happened in skateboarding in the 1990s. 90s and, and you saw these real plain, you know, just kind of khakis and what like Etnies shoes or just a solid color suede with not a whole lot of logo, you know, just real, real plain. And you would see, really want so some of the Supreme and so forth were spoofing on brands. There's a whole lot of brand riff, big logo, where the shirt looked. It was a spoof. Yeah, hang on one. Or instead of saying, hang, hang on one second, because you're starting to you're starting to uh, to lag there. So you were you were talking about something else. Yeah, you were talking about the brands that started to like we went to Normcore, and then you started talking about brands when the brands it was spoofing on other brands. Would you say it was uh, it was Etnies that was doing that, or who was doing the spoof brand? No, it wasn't wasn't Etnies. It was a, a, a lot of the skate companies were riffing on on famous logos, be it IBM, be it General Electric, be it whatever. I I won't say any one specific, specific brand. Mm -hmm. There's a lot you could get into that. That's a whole other conversation. But that was just something happening in the early '90s uh, as a, as a reaction to overbranding. And, and Normcore came later, I think, probably mid '90s. But uh, uh, what simple was the reason I started my own company? Number one is I needed to eat. But number two. <laughs> Uh, was because I knew uh, because of vision I, I had been making shoes and I knew how to, what to do and because you could see what the, the, the reality on the street was that people didn't want to wear Airwalk had, was dying on the vine at that, at that time for a variety of reasons 
Vision was dying. Just because skateboarding was dying. Uh, there's a lot of little small brands coming up at that point uh, in the skateboard world. And I started simple. I didn't want to be a skateboard shoe company because I was kind of trying to get beyond the skateboard brand. I just wanted to be a shoe company that when people saw you wearing those shoes, they didn't, you, they didn't think anything about you. They didn't think that guy's a skateboarder or that guy's a basketball player. They just were just dumb shoes. And no one made any assumptions about you, which is in some ways kind of why a lot of people drive Volkswagens, I think. They, they like the brand without without all that attached hoopla. You know, the, the, you drive a bus. The bus has a certain number of things. If you style it out one way, it can be a hippie bus. You style it out another way, it can be a classic old bus. You style it another way, it can be an off-road vehicle. You style it another way, you know, it can, it can be a, a low hot rod. And, yeah. and, and it's all up to you. It's not about the car. Nobody, the car itself doesn't really carry baggage. Like if you, if you drive a BMW, it has baggage. Or if you drive a Porsche, it has baggage, especially new ones. But an old VW, people are always friendly and nice about it. They love them. Everybody has a story. It's kind of the same with, with the shoe company. It's simple. We wanted to just be a non, we wanted to be humble. We wanted to be uh, non-confrontational. I don't know what the right word is. That's the wrong word. Yeah. Well, uh, I think, I think what it is, is with, with the Volkswagen, with the Volkswagen community, with skateboarding, with all this stuff, it's, there's an instant brotherhood when you see a person that's because with Volkswagens, I've often equated it to it's baptism by fire. It's not the mini truck scene. The mini truck scene is the shirt sold at Dillard's, right? It's the turnkey. It's ready to go. You just got to sign a check and you're in the club, right? But with Volkswagen, you think they look so cool and then it vets you really quick because it's going to let you down. It's guaranteed to break a clutch cable (laughs) or let you down. And we're going to find out if you've got skin thick enough to be a VW guy because to be a VW guy or gal or person, you have to just take it as it comes, right? It's it's going to let you down. It's it, and I call it the baptism by fire through Volkswagen, right? And you're either committed to cool or you're not. And, right. and you know what I mean? And it's part of that punk thing like I'm going to go the long way around to prove that I'm that I have the caliber to stick with this. You know? Yeah. And, and I think it's the yeah. same with, with street skating and it's like with with skating especially especially like street skating like you're just a skater, you see another kid you're not a BMXer. You're not a jock. You're not a stoner. You guys are just skaters. So there, we're all different ranks of skaters in our in our level. But it's like we just stick together, and it's and it's that same acknowledgement of like, hey, I'm committed to pushing this wooden thing down the road. So are you. That's cool enough for me. And we have this this underlying fabric that stitches us together, right? So I think. You know, that has a lot to do with it. And and especially in this world, in our generation where it's come from, like, if you think you can do it, why not just do it? Which is maybe your attitude where, where you went with with shoes, right? So you wanted to develop a shoe brand and you had to, you wanted it to be more universal than just committed to that. But you had some, some ideals behind it. Like there was certain fabrics and stuff you, like you wanted to put to test all of these things that were part of your part of your personal drive, like with whether it's using hemp and trying to use resourceful things. How was that from a guy going from, you know, starting at the origins of like, you know, the beginning of quote unquote, the band Nirvana that then blows up to be too commercialized, which is the vision streetwear analogy, right? To now you get to start basic on your own with simple shoes. And you're like, I'm going to do this on my own. What was your thought process 
in regards to scaling it down to a level where a guy by himself can get this going? I mean, obviously you sell your Volkswagens for seed money to kick this thing off. Mm-hmm. Three Karma Gears. And what did you get for the three Karma Gears? So what was the original investment into Simple Shoes? 30, 30 grand. 10 grand a Gear? Yeah. And two of them were original paint Gears? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you're... In 1990, 1991, right? Yeah. Think about it. It's a That's big back. money. That's big money for Gears yeah. back then. Yeah. And so you get 30 grand together and you're like, I'm going to find... Like what your first vision for lack of a better word is what what's your vision so i started on friday friday the 13th (laughs) is when brad and i had the big blow up at vision and uh and and depending on who you talk to either i quit or he fired me right didn't really matter it was all one big blow up and uh so that night friday the 13th my wife and i went to diedrich's coffee in tustin california and so we, you know, we gotta, we gotta do something. And, and mind you, I had been thinking about the idea of basics, like I talked about, because we were, I, I tried to convince Brad to go big with it, but he, he went a little with it, but he didn't, didn't go big. But, and, and so I knew the idea, this basic thing was where everything was going, you know, cleaner, simpler stuff. And so I was telling Cynthia, we just need to have, just need a simple little company. We need a little brand name that, that everybody's just like happy with. It's kind of just be something dumb, something simple, blah, blah, blah. And so I realized that after about an hour of talking at the coffee shop, that word simple had come up like, you know, 30 times. Like, yeah. well, that's it. It's got to be that word. And there's no way that word's available. So the next morning, I went to the United States Patent and Trademark Office in Los Angeles, which was open until noon on Saturdays back then. And so I drove up there from Orange County. I was living in Tustin. And uh, lo and behold, the word simple is available. It's like, holy smokes. The only company doing anything is, is uh, a company called Simple Green, which you know. Yeah. And, and they weren't in the category of clothing and footwear. So within clothing and footwear, uh, I was in the clear. And so I immediately uh, went around to, uh, the process to start trademarking the name, which is essentially just writing TM every time you use it. And so the name, the name was going to be simple. We put the T in next to it. And as soon as I had sold a pair across a state line, I could have a, 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 a United States registration. The circle R is much more powerful than the TM. The TM is the, so without going into too much detail on that, last Saturday I had, uh, that, that trademark kind of figure out it would be okay. The, the net didn't exist yet. So I wasn't worried about domains. There was no internet yet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, it may have been, but it was, you know, just, just a couple of people in San Jose. Anyway, uh, that night, that Saturday, I drew, that would be the 14th of December. I drew the first shoes and I faxed them off, faxed, mind you, uh, because email didn't exist, uh, to, to my buddy in Korea who had helped me with vision, who was, who was a freelance, you know, quality control guy. And his name was Harry Park and Harry, uh, connect me with a mold shop in, in Korea. So my drawings for the first molds, I, I did Saturday and Sunday that day for the outsole. And I called my friend Pete, uh, who built trade show booths. And I said, I need a 10 by 10. I want it to look like this. And we're going to use my scooters, the table. Uh, I had a Vespa and, uh, and we built a table like a skim board to sat on top of the, uh, the scooter as the desktop. And I said, Hey, I want the, the, the backboard to be birch and blah, blah, blah. And then on Monday morning, I got in the plane and flew to Korea. Uh, and, and, and I didn't have the money yet. I hadn't sold my Carmen Gia's yet, but 
And I went to the factory and I started making the first prototypes and we made the first prototypes that week over Christmas. I was in Korea and the first, the action sports trade show booth, which is the big, the big trade show in skateboarding back then was called action sports trade show in San Diego. And that was in January 20th. So I had called and I got one of the last booths available, you know, and it was, you know, mind you, I only had like less than 30 days. And I called my buddy at the silkscreen shop and I, I drew up some art for, for this t-shirts and he made me shirts and I called my embroidery buddy for the hats and he made hats and DeWitt, who was a sticker guy, he made me stickers. So by, by January 20th or 21st, whatever it was, I had hats and stickers and t-shirts and my first samples. I had literally like four shoes. That's all I had in the whole world wow. of simple, but I was at the show with product and you know, that it was just perfect timing because all the little skate brands hadn't really started up yet. And Airwalk and Vision were dying on the vine. Vans was going through a whole little rehash problem they were doing. And so there was this little tiny opening and distributors came up. A guy from Australia said, dude, I, I need these in Australia. This is rad. You used to be the Vision guy. Oh, this is rad. And then my friend in Germany, he was Vision streetwear distributor. He's like, Vision's dying. I got to do something. So we're going to, so I had all these companies from around the world, you know, as distributors. And so when you make footwear, you know, let's say just for the sake of simplicity, a shoe costs you ten dollars. It's another there's duty in the United States, depending on the kind of shoe, it can be anywhere from eighty cents to three or four dollars on that tin. And then you got shipping, which back then was about ninety cents a pair. And then you got local shipping from the harbor in the United States up to your warehouse, and you got your warehouse cost, blah, blah, blah. You're gonna end up with about fifteen bucks first cost in a pair of shoes. And so then you sell that back then for thirty bucks and the shop sold it for sixty bucks. Right. And so when you have a, and you, but you have to have all the money to pay the factory the first the first ten dollars, right? Even though you're going to sell them for sixty, ultimate for thirty ultimately to the shop, you have to have the ten at the factory, and the factory has these forty thousand pair minimums, and so uh, forty thousand pairs. Yeah, and so I had to lie and tell them I had forty thousand pairs sold, but in reality, I only had about ten thousand pairs sold to distributors. But those 10,000, the distributors, they pay you with the wire transfer up front. They pay, they don't pay the full 30 bucks. You, you give them a discount. So they pay like 22 bucks. And so you're only making $7 a pair, but it's, but they, they send you money, right? So you right. use their money to give to the factory and then you lie and tell them you have 40,000 pair and you order 40,000 pair just like by being a daring, basically, or bold. And uh, by the time, you know, six months had gone by. I had actually sold the 40,000 pair. But at, the, at that time in January, you know, a month after I started, it was a big, a big gamble. But that, that's the short version now, of how it all started. So, so my question with that is, so you essentially, because of some of your contacts that you had through vision and the change happening in skateboarding, you really launch an underground shoe company that like, with no yeah. marketing, with no anything, they just appear at skate shops everywhere. And it's like I had I had, well, by the time they appeared in the shop, the shop was, you know, they didn't you make it when you order a shoe, let's say you order shoes in January from the factory, you're not gonna get them until August. Right. And then so the so there's a six month lag in there. So during that six months, I had advertising started, I sold my car McGee's, I had money for for, for the production of the t-shirts, for the production of the stickers. I, I had worked out a deal with a friend of mine who had a space, CCS, do you remember the catalog CCS, uh -huh. California Cheapskates? So those are my good friends. When, when I was in college, the guy who started CCS was my, was my, lived next door to me. So I mean, roommates in college, Bob DeNike, you know who Bob DeNike is? 
He's a CEO of Santa Cruz Skateboards. Yeah. My other my, my other roommate is a guy who started, worked at Power Edge magazine. This, you know, and then and then Mike Adamski, who's this guy who started CCS. That was my crew, right? So we're all deep, deep in the rabbit hole of skateboarding. Yeah. And uh, so you have all these. I lost where I was going with that, but I, we have uh, the, the well, shops the, that you the sell launching to. The brand. And I knew them all. Yeah, launching the brand and getting you know market saturation. Though. Yeah. Yeah. And I sold into, into action sports distribution. I didn't sell specifically skate. I had a pretty good team. I had Mark Gonzalez riding for me then. Oh, I had really? Julian Stranger. I had Jonas Ray. I had, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of Gershon Mosley, uh, a lot of really great skaters. We had Jamie Thomas. Uh, I was the first guy to, to, to basically, Jamie used to send me videos when he was living in Alabama. And Jamie's one of the most insane skaters out there, if you know who he is. Yeah. I'm sure you know him. He's yeah. fucking famous. But back then, he was just like, I saw his video and like, oh, my God, this is this kid is incredible, you know, and uh, and he came. These guys rode for me for maybe a year because I realized I couldn't give pro skaters not riding for some semi-obscure shoe company, which is what we were. They needed to be riding for a, a, a shoe brand in the skate world. And most of them either started their own brand or, or did something big time. But it was a good little launch. And now once you finally start to see some success at the shoe company, what's the first car you buy back to to, to, to reinvest into your car hobby? Hmm. I bought a uh, 52 Zwitter, a standard, because it, it met with the vibe of Simple. And my friend in, in Laguna Beach, it was actually a 53 Oval, but it had the 52 window, and it, but it was a standard. And it, had, it was a rag top. And uh, I sold that car later. It was, it was mouse gray, and I put military tires on it and a big rope around the front. It looked really kind of machismo, like an earlier standard, but it was a 50, it was a Zwitter. And that thing just looked simple. I had the plate that said, I made, that said simple on it. And I, I, I was sponsoring the, the the show that I was sponsoring, Rich Kimball's a buddy of mine, and the, I was sponsoring the Classic. I was the, I was the banner sponsor for the VW Classic in Irvine, and and his son is still doing that now. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the, uh, that, that, that car was my first car. It was in the magazines, big military tires, but it wasn't in the magazines under my name. I sold it to Randy Carlson years later, and Randy got it put in the trends, I think, and a few other magazines. Uh, and, and then he uh, sold it back to me, and then I sold it again, and now it's one of the one of the GFK guys has it. So now, uh, but after that, as your car hobby ahead. starts to starts to evolve, and now obviously you start to make a few nickels for yourself, and you're like, okay, well, I. I and, and what's interesting is I haven't been able to pin it down because I, I notice it even with myself. Like I, you know, I built a couple cars, and then I start finding out it makes more sense to buy them done because you're way ahead of the curve as far as financially. Right. But you can also enjoy it immediately. It's an instant gratification thing. But I found that there's, there starts this thing in the VW hobby where it's the search for rare. Right. And I know that you're one right. of the first guys that had a B scow that I recall seeing. How do you run across the B because it's, you know, I remember in the eighties, I'm like, Holy crap. It's a 13 window deluxe. How rare is that? You know what I mean? And now it's mm -hmm. like, then it, you just it just continues to climb the ladder. When you start getting back in the hobby, and you you now have the the wherewithal to to invest into your hobby. What are you driven by? Like I like unique and rare and different. 
Um, wh- what is your motivation with some of that stuff? Well, after you restore, once you've restored a notchback and restored a beetle and a bus and a gear and blah, 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 you kind of, it's like ceases to be interesting to restore the 17th beetle, right? The 16th right. was enough. And so, <laughs> so you then start looking for weirder crap. And so the weirder, more esoteric, it, it sets you up, you know, it's like you're higher up on the totem pole in the VW world, for lack of a better word. And the, the, the beast guy, I was really into beast guys. I ran, ran into Blue Nelson years and years ago. And he had one. I, went, I looked at that car for probably three hours, just going, this is the craziest, weirdest, coolest thing in the whole world. And so then I started tracking. This is before the internet. Yeah. I, every time I would see one at a show, I'd just drill the owner. And then I would just keep in touch with all these different people that knew about a beast scout here and there because I was deep in that vintage rabbit hole. And then eventually one day, one of the guys that owned one, um, Blue called me and said, hey, Brad's having trouble with the IRS and needs money real quick. So if you you can get down here today with a check, I think you'll be able to buy the Beast Cow. And so I, I had a Toyota Land Cruiser. I don't think there's been any Toyota Land Cruiser that ever went any faster than this <laughs> Land Cruiser went. From I was living in Santa Barbara, and I think I was going like 98 miles an hour in a Land Cruiser to get down to El Monte, California, or wherever the car was to give Brad a check for 30 grand, which is what I paid for that beast cow. Wow. And, and it needed, uh, you know, it needed to be rebuilt. It was, it was beat up in the, and it was, he was the second owner. He had lived next door to the original owner and he got up in the original owner who was a Hollywood uh, editor. Uh, and, uh, that, that car was the beginning of a huge restoration. It takes, it takes forever to restore an aluminum car on a wooden frame on, you know, a wire frame on wire and wood frame over a VW Pan, but it took a while, but it, that car was really, really highly restored. That's why my name on Samba is over restored is because of that car. Yeah. Uh, and then he's just, at a certain point you get tired. I have a friend, uh, Jason Murphy and Jason uh, and I have built a lot of cars together and we both have been in it for so long and done so many different cars. We're always just looking for the silliest, stupidest thing. Like I had this 2110 motor out of an old Beetle that I sold and the, it was a bird, beautiful motor, you know, big Weber's and all that. But, but you know, you got 12 grand or 15 grand in the motor and you can't sell it. Nobody wants to give you that kind of money. So I'm right. like, Jason, what can we do to get rid of this motor? I want to get rid of this motor. And it's like, well, let's, let's put it in a car and we'll build it in the car. And I'm like, well, who's going to, you know, I'm never going to make enough money building a Beetle with the, with this motor in it. And so uh, uh, Ray Schubert up in San Jose who builds cars for yeah. Mark Merrill. I don't know. You know Ray? I do. Ray had this really, really screwed up old Kubel, this 42 Kubel, and it was on a 63 chassis, and this beat, and no, all the parts are incorrect. And I'm like, hmm, that's the car for me. And Ray's like, yeah, I'll, I'll sell you that Kubel. And so I bought that Kubel. And through this, and through a big beat, I got a tranny from from uh, 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 one of the big tranny guys back then. I forget who was it, Rhino? Rancho. I don't remember who made it. Rancho. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Rancho. That's it. Thank you. They uh, they built one of their beef, you know, drag style trannies, and and then uh, I, I redid the pan and put uh, this motor in the back, which was a twenty one ten, you know, probably hundred and fifty horsepower, which in a nineteen forty two Google was pretty cool. Yeah. And then we lowered the shit out of it. We lowered it so low I had to actually build brackets to raise the front fenders four inches just so I could keep it as low as it was because it was static dropped about nine inches. And then uh, we cut we I made a fake windshield for it, a chopped windshield and drove that thing to Solvang, the vintage meat, um, and pissed off or it was that car was built because it was 
it could piss off every VW guy in the whole world. Because if you're a vintage guy, it pisses you off. If you, the patina look didn't really exist yet. This is early nineties. Yeah. This is where I just sold, I just sold simple. So I was kind of feeling flesh and you know, that car, I don't know if you ever saw that car, but it was, yeah, I do. it was I remember funny. that car. It was, I, and I, and I, Kip, I don't know if Randy Kip Carlson Zerman. ended up with that car, but I remember no different one, different one. I remember, one. I remember seeing that. Did you have this at the classic? Uh, I, I do believe I took, and I don't think I ever took that car to the classic. I think it just went to Solvang and I sold it to, Randy had one of the classic later. And there's another one in England. My, mine was, um, I think it was only shown at Solvang. Kip Zimmerman bought it in Florida and he showed it in Florida for a while. Yeah, this is. And now so, it's restored. And I know that this is, uh, you know, this is at the, at the time that the new BRMs just come out. And again, yeah. In the VW hobby, it's like, what can I put on my car that's different that nobody has yet? So it's like, I remember when I was building my bus, I debuted my bus in 2002. And when I bought it in, in like 2001, I was like, I'm putting BRMs on it because nobody's got a bus on BRMs yet. And then by the time I, I right. put it out, you know, it's years later, but it's like you're constantly searching for that one thing that makes you more punk than the next guy. You know what I mean? And right. it's so funny how that's, the same in, in fashion, in cars, in everything. It's just that same that that same cultural drive with this. So you show up at Solvang. Yeah. So, so there's more. So Blue and I became buddies after the Romax thing. And Randy Carlson and Blue and I had all toured around Europe. This was, again, before the internet, 1993 or so. We toured around Europe together. We went to the uh, bad Camberg meet, and then we went to the to the Romish factory, which still existed at this time. And we got badges for the cars. I was missing a badge, and but, but all during that trip, uh, we we sort of fantasized about that same subject: what kind of car can we build? And Randy just loves building weird shit. But uh, we ended up coming up with the, the new Beetle was just coming out. Vision had a uh, sorry, Simple had a relationship with VW because I was trying to convince them to let me build a standard edition in gray of the new Beetle and co-brand it was simple. Right. And this is around 1995 and the new Beetle was coming out in 96. I had the first new Beetle on the street in the United States. Oh really? And uh, other, other than the advertising cars and uh, a yeah, red one and it said simple on the plate and I drove it around like fucking rock star for the first <laughs> six months with no, no other cars available. But, but Randy and, and I and Blue came up with this idea to do this new Beetle adventure I don't know if you remember that, but we drove across the United States in three new Beatles in 1996 and Volkswagen sponsored the tour. And uh, during that trip, we, you know, we stay in motels every night and we drink beers or hang out in restaurants. And so we're fantasizing about what kind of cars we can do. And that Kubel idea happened uh, plus or minus right in there somewhere, as did what else can we do? What's, what's, what's the most ridiculous thing we could do? And this guy, I met Jason who runs... Um, uh, uh, it's called Murco now, M-U-C-R-O, and he makes, uh, uh, he's a hot rod guy, he builds lowered cars, but he used to have Speedwell, in the old days he ran Speedwell, which is a, an old VW name, but he and I, he and I rebranded that name and brought it back, now Ray Crosnell, Ray Schubert owns Speedwell. He also had a company called um, Rustbox, and built a lot of lowered buses and sold them to Japan. But, but he and I met on this, this trip 
across the country. And later we would just constantly try to figure out what can we build that's the most outrageous thing ever. And I had an old Land Rover body. I had a 1962, I think, Series 2A wreck, a truck, a Land Rover pickup truck. And we said, we got to build a lowered uh, Land Rover with a, with, a, with a 356 motor. And so uh, he built the chassis, and we used a Type 3 rear end and a Type 1 narrowed front end, and we put a Super 90 Porsche motor in the back. And that was just to piss off. It would piss off the Land Rover guys, right. piss off the Porsche guys, and piss off the VW guys. It was just like the perfect car. And then he ended up buying that car for me and putting a VW motor in it, and he showed that the classic painted flat black. But just, it's just the idea of doing something silly, stupid, learning something you've never done before. I'm doing it right now. I have a 60, 69 Beetle I bought. It's a sort of a patina, original paint car patina. But we're putting a, we're take, we took all the drivetrain out and training in the engine. We're putting Tesla, a cradle from EV West with a Tesla Model 3 motor oh, nice. drivetrain in it and 930 CVs. And I got those uh, really beefy brakes from Kevin Zagar, cool, cool stop brakes. And, it's going to be an interesting car, but it's really boring. It's like the most boring Beetle you can buy, a 69, right? Nobody even looks at 69s. Right. It is the world's most boring Volkswagen. But that car with 300 horsepower electric is looking, other than it has five lug steel Porsche wheels on it, which painted to look like a VW wheel, that car is going to be interesting to drive and, and show up somewhere with that kind of power yeah, and, I, and look I, boring. I've had Michael on the podcast before, and I've always been intrigued by the by the uh, EV swap on some of those, because I just think it's, especially for, you know, rear engine air-cooled cars, it makes just such a perfect fit. Um, it, it would be yeah. interesting to, to talk to you after a long-term exposure of having that thing and driving it and seeing what, you know, how how you enjoy it and how you, you know, with in between range and comfortability and power. Right, because right. with anything that's got power, you get used to the power after a while. You know, yeah, it, totally. it, it, it becomes kind of mundane, but... After the after the B Scout and the Kubel and the Land Rover, which is pretty rad, um, after you do all those things, you start to get into some of the Porsche stuff. You start to collect Porsches and things like that. How do you end up getting into Porsches? Collect's probably the wrong word. I like building them. I love building cars. So it's just love. It's like a you know, it's a hobby that's very fulfilling. I love taking them apart and I love sandblasting all the parts and painting them and getting everything clean and tidy and replating and blah, blah, blah. And then once they're done, then they're just kind of a, then they're kind of boring yeah. because they're all perfect and bitching and, and they're fun to drive and fun to go to the show. But after that, it's like, okay, now what? Cause right. you're done. And so I end up usually selling them, but I, I've been through a bunch of 356s. Mike Mellon has two of my old 356s. He has my green 55 continental that I spent a fortune on, but, but he paid full bucks for that. And but back then it wasn't even that much money. Now the Continental, I remember seeing the Continental because I also I, I have subscribed to Excellence for I can't tell you how many years, but I've probably got I don't know how many, and it's just weird because I I've owned a couple Porsches, but not like for long period. You know, I I've had a a nine twelve, I had an eighty six nine eleven, which was my first actual registered running driving Porsche, mm -hmm. and then I, I I owned a a ninety nine 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 six that was option to the hilt. And that was even a better car, better air conditioning, bet, like a better for a driving vehicle, one of the most underrated ones. But I remember having an issue, having an issue of uh, excellence, and your Continental was in there. Now, yeah. for those that don't know, because we're, we're we're still talking classic German cars, we're talking Porsche. So, 
what is the Porsche? What makes it a Continental? And I know that it had, I think those were those Dayton's on there or those a different brand? Yeah, Dayton, Dayton, Dayton. But a factory Dayton? No, no, no. Okay. They're aftermarket. Okay. Factory didn't make, make wires. So a Continental is a fit. So there's a guy, uh, uh, oh my brain, come on, Eric. The import, Hoffman, Joseph Hoffman. Yeah. Uh, imports Volkswagens, right? And he imports a lot of rare cars. And uh, he tells Porsche that the word, calling a Porsche a number, 356, is a stupid idea. He needs names for him. So he comes up with the idea Speedster, and he comes up with the idea Continental for the coupe. Uh, and so Porsche goes, oh, great idea. We'll do it. So all these 55 Porsches sent to the United States are called Continental. Hello, Ford calls and says, uh, guys, Continental's trademarked. Can't use that word. Sorry. <laughs> Bye-bye. Click. Dial tone. And so they, the 55 only Continental. And after that, they started calling them Europeans, but the European was, was too esoteric and there's only a few Europeans. And so they went back to the numbering system and the 356A came out. And that's, they just stuck with numbers after that. So, but yeah, 55 is a, is a last of the pre A uh, early Porsches. And they were referred to, are they titled as a Continental? No, they're 350. Well, the title is a, as a, as a Porsche. Typically, it probably just says Porsche on the title, but the, the way they're referred to in, in, in the Porsche, you know, factory would just be a 356 without the A on the end, but it's not a 356A yet. It's still the early suspension. Now, if I remember correctly, this, so you kind of took some of your VW um, influences when you built this Continental out. Like yeah, a lot just, of accessory crap. Just being really unique and different than the average Porsche guy. What was the feedback from the Porsche people? Was it still, you were still the punk they're rock super, Porsche? They're super <laughs> ARR. The Porsche guys are really, really obsessive, compulsive, and detail oriented. And I had subsequently become really obsessive, compulsive in some cars. But uh, the the Porsche crowd really likes the original colors, and they want everything to match. They want the numbers to match. Blah blah blah. It becomes goofy at a certain point is so you know retentive but uh, that car was originally a palm green car which is a really rare color that nobody actually has the actual color sample to anymore and so i looked and looked and looked and looked for you know a year or so to try to find the original color couldn't 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 it, the car had been wrecked and so forth there's no original paint on the car no other cars i could find no good photos even and so uh i found a few photos and it looked a lot like uh, the the uh, the color uh, oh, what's the green color from Volkswagen? Sand green. Uh, no, it's uh, it'll come to me. Doesn't There's a color. There's an early Volkswagen green, which uh, shoot, can't remember the name right now. Um, is very similar to the palm green, and so I, I just declared to the body the car is ready to paint. We've been waiting for weeks since like I figured out the stupid paint color, and I just said just use. Uh, this color from from Porsche. I'm sorry, from Volkswagen, uh, and it's it's a classic '52 Volkswagen green. I just can't remember the name of it. Uh, and so we painted it that color, and that, from that point forward, everybody in the in the Porsche world, because I just said this is palm green, nobody could disagree, nobody could argue. And so right. if I went to a show and I said it's palm green, none of the judges know what palm green is. So it worked out okay. But the, but the interior, I'd put a leather in, which is a deep sort of ox blood oxblood burgundy red and that there was never a Porsche color like that so I, they would kill me on that on the interior being the wrong color but i didn't care it looked great with this deep red on this this uh green exterior which is a was it, pa- it not, pastel green or jupiter yes, pastel green, green. Right. pastel i got you buddy i had a jupiter green dash in it though 
Oh, did you? <laughs> so you did, you, but you like, I mean, I, and I guess that's maybe followed through, right? From your upbringing and music and culture and all that stuff to always kind of push against the norm, do something. Oh, yeah. so there is, I restore, I restore houses now for fun. It's the same Jones, whether you're working on a car or a shoe or clothing, or I mean, you set tiles, it's the same Jones, you know, yeah. it's just an eye. I call it the eyeball. If you have the eye, you pick out the right trim, you pick out the right base, you know, the right field color tile. And then you, you got to really sweat over what color grout you're going to use, whether you're going to use sanded or not sanded. And the, all those details, if you do it right, it looks bitching. If you do it wrong, it looks stupid. And so that artistic eye is, yeah. is the same. It's the same across doodling to, to building a house. It's the same. So so the current build you're working on is the, is the 69 Beetle. What made you, you just, did you grab the Beetle just for the oxymoronic aspect of like being the most mundane Beetle you could find and just put a really yeah. ridiculous amount of power into it? So... I also like expanding my knowledge set, right? So I, sure. I was a mechanic when I was in high school and, and college. I was a Volkswagen mechanic because I, I know about you know, everything you can do to a VW I've done 20 times. And I know how to rebuild a motor. I know how to rebuild a transmission, et cetera, et cetera. So what can I do that's different? It's not fun. It's not, it ceases to be fun, you know? Yeah. And I want to do something that's, like, I want to, this car, this car can fucking kill me. It's 350 <laughs> volts, you know? I right. gotta really be careful, you know? So it's something and I've never done it before. So I built a, I built an electric bicycle first uh, from scratch. And then, uh, I, well, I had an old bike and electrified it. And then I did a scooter, which I sent you photos of. Yeah. And this is an old, an old 58 Pook. And I converted it to electric. It's a 72 volt, you know, small motor, but it's fun for a scooter. And it's like, okay, I got to take it to another level. And so those two are sort of like the precursors of just understanding what a controller is, what the inverter is and what all the parts are. And so this Beetle is my first foray into um, building, building electric car. And I like the reason it's a 69 is because 69 is a first year IRS unless you're buying a 68 auto stick. But I didn't, those are hard, hard enough to find, but I found the 69, on uh, Craigslist in Beaumont, California. And it had all been sitting outside forever. So it's got that classic old baked look that looks so great with the roof yeah. crusty, but not dented. And uh, it happens at IRS. So you can take out the transmission too, because the whole thing about electrifying a VW, most guys still use the tranny. And so then you have this electric motor running through a VW tranny. And if you use big power, the VW tranny can't deal with it. And you're also just dealing with the, the transmission fluid, Slepco, whatever, and swing axle boots, and it's dripping if you let it sit um, And I wanted something completely different, so I took out the tranny and the engine, and the, the, the Tesla drive unit sits in the middle, and you put in 930 CVs and 930 axles, and you beef up, you go to heavy, I went to turbo brake centers, uh, where, where, so they're, so they're, they're forged steel, mm -hmm. so that the axles won't strip out uh, the splines of the, of the brakes. So you're doing a, a an entire Tesla drivetrain complete in that thing. Well, they call it the drive unit, which is a combination of the transmission, the differential, and the engine all in one. So you just have basically two CV joints like you would come out of an IRS trans. Uh -huh. That's what's coming out of the that's what's coming out of the Tesla drive unit, and that's what's being bolted up to custom axles and custom uh, uh, sub axles and and 930 CVs. Uh, going through those big Kevin Zagar breaks. And Michael makes a pretty plug-and-play system, doesn't he? I mean, everything he makes he, is... He makes the cradle, and he make, and he supplies the engines and, and the controllers and stuff. It's not plug-and-play. You still have to... Um, 
figure out what kind of uh, batteries you're going to use and how, and how many and where they're going to go and do it. He does make battery boxes now. So yeah, that part's all pretty straightforward, but it, the, the unstraightforward part is just dialing in all the, the cabling and then dialing in the computer programming, which is something I know nothing about, which I will within a year or so know more about. <laughs> but I mean, uh, it seems like that's your nature, right? To kind of, to, to do something that's a little different than the norm and then, develop your insight to those things to, to find something that's challenging to you a bit, you know? I just think it's the next phase of cars. I think that ultimately, I don't like, when I have a new Ford F-150 Lightning, right? So it's electric Lightning, which right. is my first electric car, which is a fantastic truck. It's a little too big for, for what I'm used to, but as far as a daily driver go, oh my God, it's a pretty killer vehicle. And going forward, I'd rather take an old VW and make it electric just to be, because I'd rather be seen in an old VW than, like, I can't really drive around. And I had a newer 911 for a while, but you're just a dick driving around in that car. And so <laughs> I, I, I can't be that guy. You know, I, I had, to, I sold that car. It's just too much. I have an old, I have an 84, like the 86 you had, yeah. which is, which is, that's, I can deal with that. It's still kind of retro. It's all right. You know, you don't look like, that guy. Yeah. And, and, and but that, what, what, when you drive an old VW, it's people just, they, they have empathy for it. They love it. They want to stop and talk and all that stuff. And if you're, it, everybody's got a story about a beetle. And so I just wanted to try to figure a way to make an old beetle uh, modern and feel like a daily driver. And so you could just get in and go, you don't have to think about it. You don't have to worry about the battery. You don't have to worry about the clutch cable. You don't have to worry about whatever the, the carburetor distributor. No, 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 that's there anymore. It's just a plug and play, go to, go to the grocery store, get a six pack and come home. And, and you know, what's, what's in your collection right now? Like what are you, cause when you go through a lot of cars, there's gotta be something that's like, some of your cars that are just keepers, like I'm keeping this no matter what. This is one of my keepers. And what cars have you found yourself holding on to? Um, I mean, obviously you're not. I've had a lot of cars, but I've evolved over the years from, I used to always want to have the best. I wanted like the B-Scow, for instance. I wanted to be top of the heap, right? That's all ego related. And I realized that that after you've done that, it's no longer that interesting. That whole like win yeah. the show thing not that interesting yeah uh, you're just worried about the car everywhere you go and and having perfect 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 restored car is is not that interesting to me anymore so i have um old i have kind of not so great cars i have i used to have a beautiful convertible d that was perfect i had a continental it was perfect 100 point cars you know couldn't drive them because if you screw that car up in any way the value drops by a lot because 100 point to, to 96 is a big drop it's the same as from from unrestored to 96 right and so uh, uh i i ended up i have an 84 original paint uh dark navy blue carrera which I really like because it's, it's, I had 993s, I had a 993 beautiful turbo and I had a 993 just normal aspirated. And I've had a bunch of other cars that I sold that were perfect new, newer uh, cars. But at this point I have two 62 Beetles. There's a whole story behind those two Beetles, which is probably too long for us to go into the short version. These two are all original, hundred percent original cars, original paint, original paint on the wheels, just a, Nice cars. Yeah. Uh, they came out of the Pacific Northwest, owned with different owners. They eventually went to a collection together in the 70s. They were sold out of that collection to different owners. The different, then they came back together again with an owner. They, they, went, were, they went apart. They were always, they, from new, they were a pair. They were together since No, now. no, no, they were not. But in the 70s, they got into a collection, and they sat in that collection for a while. That's why there's so low mileage. 
and in the eighties, they were sold to different people. And, and, and then they went to, uh, one of them went to, to Santa Barbara, uh, and, and one of them went to Los Angeles. Uh, and then the Santa Barbara one went to the same guy in Los Angeles. And then that guy sold one of them to a guy in Iowa and, uh, he moved North to Oregon. And then the guy from Iowa ended up selling that car back to the guy in, in uh, Oregon. And that guy sold me one of the cars and I, it's, 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 I, I'm getting the story slightly wrong. The long story short is I, I ended up with both cars again after they've been in three, four different, different collectors, randomly different collectors collections, not bought from the same person. And what's hard the, to explain. What's the mileage on those cars? Uh, the, the Turkish ragtop um, is like uh, 17,000. Oh, wow. And the, uh, uh, the, 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 the white pearl white is like, uh, I think it's 50 something thousand. In all honesty, I think the Turkish ragtop is just an incredibly well-maintained 117,000. But people have always told me it was 17,000. When you look at it, it is spectacular. But there's just a few little things on it that are like, that car looks a, a little bit more worn than 17,000. Because the 50,000-mile white one, which is, is incredibly low mileage on its own is spectacular you know yeah what's interesting with my so the closest i have to an all original car is my mexican beetle i have a 2003 mexican beetle that has 4500 kilometers on it and when i originally had it it had 1500 kilometers on it and then i was cursed with owning it not wanting to drive it and then my friend burley burlisle which i don't know if you know he's a vw historian been around forever Burley Motorsports. Uh, he, I, he may have had something back in the day. He was he made the thirty two okay. Ford kit for the Volkswagen back in the seventies. Okay, okay. And Burley's a VW historian, land speed guy all the time. And we were doing a podcast about stuff, and he said, "You know, I wanted my very own new Beetle to put all the miles on." So then I ended up buying my Mexican Beetle back, having this vision of me just racking up all these miles, and it's built for Mexico, so the tranny's not very high geared, and uh, right. It, but, you know, to, to own an original early example, you get caught in that quandary of like, do you want to put the miles on it or not? And I, I believe there's you don't want to put miles on just to run to the store to grab a drink, but to take it right. on a drive, to enjoy it and to do that stuff. I think some of these cars are meant to be driven. What's your position on some of these on these low mods cars? Do you, are you scared to drive them or do you enjoy driving them? I like I like driving them. Um, I don't drive them as much as I used to. Uh, I have 58 356 coupe, which is not original. It's just, you know, it's just an old car, but it's not perfect paint, but it looks okay. It looks great, mm -hmm. but it's, I can park, I can put a weed whacker on the, on the, on the rack. I can, I can throw dirt in on it. I don't care. You know, it's not, it's not, it's got dings. It's got dents. Uh, it doesn't hurt it to go to the hardware store and park in a tight parking lot. I'm not right. worried about it at all. That car is my favorite car. Because it, it's been painted twice, so who cares if it gets painted again? Who cares if it gets a seventy fifth door dang? But you it's, know, it's it, it's interesting it's, how it's, your taste evolves. You know, you go from chasing the B scow, you know, super ultra rare, and then yeah. you get it, and you're like, "Well, I'm the steward of this car, and I must bring it to show level." Versus like yeah. the guy who's just I just picked up a a Gia TC this last weekend, which is out of Brazil. And my yeah. wife and I attempted to drive it back from Denver and I lost the motor going through the Rockies. So it's oh. back over there now, but it was just one of these things where 
it's been Brazilian. And if you've ever bought a car from Brazil, everybody knows what that means, right? They use a lot of, they use a hawk and trowel with their bundle over there. But mm-hmm. I just, I, it's such a cool, unique car that I've started collecting cars that are like, and I want to drive them all. So it's not like they're just a collection to be looked at. Like every Saturday, I pick one to drive. I go to Cars and Coffee. I hang out. I'll take it on a, a trip or whatever. But I just, now for me, it's gotten to the point of like, I like cars that kind of either they're really unique and I want to drive them or they've got a story that comes with the car. And I think that yeah, starts that's good. as, as you know, because in the, and the funny part is in this punk rock skateboarding, you know, counterculture world of Volkswagens we live in, we start out with like, I'm going to build mine. It's going to be unique. And then the first time I bought a car, I had a chance to buy a car that was on the cover of Hot BW's 1989, How to Customize Your Volkswagen. It, it was my Bible because in the middle it had a four-page spread that had the year-by-year differences of every Beetle. So I could study that, right? That car, there's a car on the cover that's a red chop top. That was that was this car that inspired me for so much. And I was able to buy this car. It's on original BRMs and all this stuff. But it was like, I felt real weird about it because like, well, it's not my car. But it was such an inspiration to me that I was like, well, I don't even care. I'm buying it because of what it means to me. And now not only am I going to own that car, but I'm going to drive the crap out of that car. And so cool to see so many people like, Oh, I remember that car from the eighties. I even own uh Steve connects uh, the cover car for 87 VW trends. It's a, it's a pink notch back with purple graphics oh, yeah, yeah. and stuff on it. So I own that car. I did, a, I, I did a podcast with Steve. That was the Bakersfield guys. It just came out of nowhere mm-hmm. and cleaned up the show scene. But what's so cool is I look at that car and although it's built to 1980 standards, which is so much different than today, I look at that car and think like there was a 20 year old dude putting French taillights and, and custom fitted bumpers and all this super wild stuff. And he's just a VW guy, a resourceful dude that later went on to work in the field of engineering without a degree. You know what I mean? Like there's so many of those mm-hmm. stories, but I, I love the variety of the hobby, the different eclecticness of it. And no matter what, like that pink notchback today is still punk rock. It's so punk rock that everybody that's trying to do cool 80s stuff, you know, like they have that Radwood festival that happens now. And it's like, if I rolled that car to Radwood, uh, there's no more punk rock than Everybody'd that. Everybody'd be like, uh, be, well, because everybody there is a wannabe, and that's the real deal. You know what I mean? Like that, some right, dude right. had low top vans, and he had a mullet, and he was driving that dude with a painter's cap on. You know, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I love the way that the hobby evolves, and and I enjoy how us as enthusiasts, our tastes evolve evolve as well, to where we kind of seek different things out of the hobby in the, in the beginning. It's, a, it's an evolution. Yeah. You know, I think it's an evolution because you, you, what you think you want, like I always used to think I wanted that perfect restored highest level of Volkswagen, right? but one, until you've eaten that carrot, it's hard to really understand what that's like. But once you have that and you, then you stress over that, then you, you evolve your tastes evolve so that like now I'm just stoked to have a Volkswagen and talk to anybody about the 69 Beetle is fine because it's still the same Jones and it's a less, it's more humble and it's, and it's more attainable and you can just goof off in it and park it and leave it unlocked and nobody cares. And it's just like, you know, it's not, 
they don't, it's kind of like the shoes in many ways. They don't judge you by your vehicle. You know, they, 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 they just, they just look at it as a friend. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know how to explain. I always stress over how people, cause I have a certain amount of money now, so I, I can do almost anything we want to do, but to drive that car, that's that, that, that fancy new car, you know, I drive the Ford truck because it's as innocuous as you can get in a new car. You can't, it's not, it's just, no one looks at a Ford truck and goes, oh, look at that asshole. You know, they're just a Ford truck. And I, and I think that's, that's something that, you know, uh, you kind of go through it's it's when you don't have the money you think you really want it and then when you have the money to buy it there's a different there's a different perspective like yeah i could buy it if i wanted it but then it's just that then it just sits and then it's just like i drive every now and again and when i drive it i'm like was it really worth it you know what i mean and so there's a different way of of processing it when you have the means to have it but then it becomes less desirable to some degree because it's like yeah i could get it if i want but yeah I'm over it, mm-hmm. you know, and I think- exactly. And I like your your comment about the the car with the story is really cool too. That's something I've had a couple like that, but cars that have like there's a car here locally that was owned by one of my friends who was a mechanic, an older guy, and that that car has a lot of. Or like remember Randy from BBGs had that famous Randy Randy Randy. Um, oh shoot, I don't remember his name. It was a junkyard down here. He died a few years ago. And his Beetle was always at the shows with this rusty rack and it was all crusty. It was probably the first patina car. Randy Carlson bought it and then resold it. He called it Randy's VW or something. Oh, Randy? That car just has it. Yeah, the guy no, that made the Randar wheels or different Randy? No, no. This is an older guy with a beard okay. uh, who ran a junkyard here locally in the Pomo, California. I'm sorry, I can't remember his last name, but his car was kind of famous. He's a friend of Joe Crockett. I don't know if you know who Joe Crockett was. Joe's a famous old VW historian who also just passed away now. But there's a, there's a certain cars that have this vibe because of their previous owners and that aura around them um, surpasses whatever you might do by restoring it, even though it's a little scrappy. It's just nice to have. Yeah. It's like an old friend sort of hanging out uh, or a favorite old shirt or something. Yeah. And the stories are just fun. And, and sometimes, you know, the car in a parking lot by itself is just there. But to know the story of that car makes it so much more interesting and and it mm-hmm. kind of brings me back to the fondness of like the back in the 80s you know two years ago when they did the vw classic at costa mesa again i'd brought down future shock which is the pink notchback and another car that was restored by one of steve's buddies that he that the guy sold and then his son tracked the car down and bought it we had both cars on display and what was so cool was just to see the cars on full display doors open suicide hood all that stuff and then with uh, Jack DiGiacomo's car, he still had the painted signboard that went with the car. It kind of had the whole story, which is really, really cool and unique. And it's like anymore, some of these old cars, it's worth it to have a story, which I, which what I've been trying to do is get with people. And, you know, it, even if they did a small YouTube video or something, but do a small QR code in the window where you just click it and you could see the whole story of that car oh, yeah. because there's so much. I, I own a limousine bus that was built by the Beetle Barn and it was in Hot VW's magazine spring of 72. And it's it's three feet longer and, and it's and it's a the front. Like half, the one Cotches did? No, it's different. This was built huh. like for advertising business. So it says Beetle, the Beetle Barn on the side really big. But he used it to take his six kids camping. So he stretched it three feet. And the front half is a 56 walkthrough. The back half is a 59 combi sunroof. 
right? So it's two rare buses put together and it's still in the original paint. I mean, it's, it's tattered, it's worn, it's weathered. That car yeah. has such a story that it's so cool. And, and when I got it, I kind of got it from my friend's widow and it was like, well, I, you know, she offered it to me for a good price. I can always make some money on it. And then I got it and I started looking at it and it soaked in and I thought, I can't sell this thing. It's a part of Las Vegas's history. Like this thing is, so now I've got this obligation, but I love driving it around. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to do my own thing with a little bit. I'm going to lower it a little bit put some, you know, some Crestline style wheels on there. Yeah. It's got a 1600 that it'll get a new AMR supercharger on it. So it's going to kind of look like a, like a support vehicle for a seventies drag crew, but it still has the original logos and all that. But I love, I love the history that some of these cars have been around for so long that they so just. I, I could, tell I can take this a little bit, a little bit more esoteric. These two old Beetles I have, the '62. Well, not that old, but the '62s. Yeah. They're both both built in April of '62, which is the month that I was born. But I didn't buy them because of that. I just they just happened to be that. But right. what's the trip? Is that they 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 came they they started life together, you know, in the same month at Wolfsburg, and then they both went to the Pacific Northwest. Uh, it took within, you know, about 30 miles of each other. And then they were in a collection together in the seventies. Right. And then they, then they went apart to different owners and they got back together again for a while in the eighties. And they went back they went apart again and they got together again in the 1990s for a little while, 2000, sorry. Uh, and then they went apart again and then they got back together again in my garage. So it's like this little romance between these two yeah. needles. And I, 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 I parked them right next to each other in the garage because they've just been next to each other for 70 freaking years and 60 years rather. And, and it's just like, Oh my God, these cars just want to be next to each other. So I can't separate them. It's like buying two kittens at the pound. You know, yeah. I don't want to separate their, their brothers or well, brother and sister or something. And, and I think, you know, I think that it's going to come a time where well, I, I'm, I'm working on currently, a uh, a video like a 10 minute video of and and the 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 bus on the side says Warren's Beetle Barn. So now this this video is going to be called Warren the Beetle Barn Bus. And I want to tell I do a small like 10 minute documentary on the history of this bus. It's changed hands several times ended up back in Las Vegas, but almost from the standpoint of the bus's perspective. You know what I mean? I think yeah, that's yeah, totally. I think it's so unique and to tell that story from the bus's vision would be so cool because That's for, awesome. for a couple decades, it sat in the back of the wrecking yard on all flats left to be discarded. And then it was picked up by a collector. And then this happened and it changed hands. But I think that's so for me, it's so, it's so fun. And it comes from, at least me, I equate it to, you know, watching uh, when I was a kid watching um, Corvette Love summer, them. no Cor Corvette <laughs> summer. And you see okay. like he builds this car, puts his whole heart and soul into it. Then it just gets stolen. He chased it around. But for me, like when I seeing that as a kid, it always gave me this impression that cars have like a soul. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And like, and, you, and you're wanting to, to, to have these things to where, you know, you want to build, put that life back into them. But really I, they're, they're happiest when they're be, when they're able to perform what they were built to do, which is, take you and your family and your friends to these places where you have memories or you have an experience or you get to do something different. And it's that whole Americana, right? When traveling, when the automobile liberated so many people, you know, yeah. 
So I love it, man. I, I just think, you know, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a goober on it, you know, but I think all of us car guys to some degree are that way, you know, where we just have this, this feeling for these inanimate things that really, when some Martian life form comes down they're they're meaningless. But I mean, I, I just think it's so cool as part so, of Somebody once told me that nobody's going to remember when you're in the rest home when you're 90 years old, nobody's going to want to hear the story about you and your Tercel. You know, but the the stories about your old Volkswagen that you drove and all that, people always want to know that story. And, and when you drive the the old Volkswagen, for some reason, you run into really cool, interesting people. I've never really run into a dick in a Volkswagen. They've always been helpful or friendly or, you know what I mean? And that, that, that crew, it's like a secret handshake in some ways. You run into somebody, you see that you're driving, whatever driving, you can kind of get a vibe on them. And like, oh, yeah, that guy's cool. Let's go find out what and, he's about. And you've owned several different marquees. And I, I've gone to the standpoint of like I've been in Mustang clubs. No, not really Mustang clubs, but I've owned a Mustang, hung out with Mustang guys. And all the different guys are, are a little different. But the VW yeah. community seems to be so universally like they nailed it with the people's car. The name of the people's car. It's like it's it's just your go to no problem. This is going to be, it, it, it's the essence of what it is. And I, I, I've never, I've always said, and one of the things that I say all the time on the podcast is Volkswagens are as American as apple pie. And it, I think it's the Doyle, Dane and Burnback company, the advertising company is who created that, that are instilled. They're like, they put the soul in the brand. Cause you look at the brand in Europe, it has, it's it's a, it's more of a automobile company. Right. When when it came into the U.S., it really sold into the empathy of the human. The way they advertised those cars was incredible in the '60s, especially. And and I think it's to some degree in Europe back then, but more so here because we didn't see anything earlier, and we didn't have the the kind of in, in France and Europe they had a lot of association with the German thing because of World War II, which we didn't have here as much. And, just, it, just for some reason, I think that advertising agency just probably is probably the, my favorite advertising campaign ever was that, that, you know, how much longer can we keep handing you this line, that drawn, the simple line, right. I don't remember that one ad, yeah. that, that ad is the, the kingpin ad of all those ads. Uh, well, you think and, to yourself, and, from, even from a, even from an advertising standpoint, it was so, it was like the self-deprecating Hey, mm-hmm. here we are. And it was so, it was so unique at the time and it's so overdone nowadays, right? Where they, they've mm-hmm. tried to take from that and imagine being Volkswagen and that's what they pitch you with. Like, no, 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 no. We're going to make fun of this. We're going to put a picture of a lemon and we're going to put a picture of this car. You know what I mean? And it's so. To have the balls to be able to do that, let, to let someone do that. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty incredible, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it, it's a really endearing vehicle and so many people are connected to them. And I, I have a classic Buick Riviera and there, there's a, there's a documentary that I'm in with Randy Carlson and Bob Hull when they were doing the VW classic and it was on the fine living channel called Volkswagen, the automobile automobilia or something like that. And it was the history of the Volkswagen at the end, they come to me and I'm just debuting my bus for the first time in 2002 or 2003. And I said, you know, I'll be at a gas station in my Buick. And someone says, yeah, my grandpa had one or my uncle had one. But if I'm on my gas, if I'm at the gas station, my Volkswagen, everyone has a, a connect, a direct connected story to a VW. And yeah. that's really been the difference that I've always noticed is that everyone relates to those cars in some way, shape or form. 
So and what you started out at the beginning, you were talking about how you have to have you have to pass the bar by being able to repair or maintain. Usually those stories involve the fact that the coil fell off the fan shroud and the car died on the freeway in the fast lane or something really, really excruciatingly traumatic, you know? Yeah. But you made it out. You pulled it off by yourself with you and your girlfriend in, in Baja or whatever, you yeah. know? And you made it home. And that it's like you're, you become the hero because you and your car solved the problem. And that's 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 what's the, the joy of the car is that interrelationship, almost like a, you and your aunt, your pet. In some yeah. ways, you solved whatever it was. You, you you discovered something together. Whatever happened, it was this thing that happened with you and the car. You're 100 percent correct. It's a connection that's made where you not only did you fix your own problem, you became resourceful. You realized your own capabilities, but now it gives you like this. You get your first medal on your chest of like, okay, now if something else happens, I'll figure out a way to get home. Like no matter what. They're going mm-hmm. to they're, they're, string out the window holding the <laughs> throttle okay. because your cable broke. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's so funny, but you know, that's, that's the thing. I remember talking to a guy in Australia. He has a bicycle company there. Right. And he said he was at the skate park, saw a square back and he had to have one. So he bought a square back on the way home from buying it. It spun a drum and he has no idea what's going on. And he says, he says, even though I was broken down, I was on the side of the road looking so cool. <laughs> and I said, you know, that that's it. And that's the tester right there because there's people that get in the VW hobby and they try to dabble a little bit. And uh, unless you're resilient, you're not long for this hobby. Right. You know, so. I know you were driving on the side of the road and if you're broken, some other idiot in the VW will stop and go, hey, what do you need? Yeah. And then you and he become friends. And like 40 years later, you're still friends. Exactly. Exactly. No, it's great. You know, Eric, I love, I'm, I've really enjoyed this podcast. There's been so many things that I've, I've enjoyed talking about. I mean, especially some of the vision streetwear stuff. Cause for me, that was so close to like this such cool thing that finally, you know, as a skater back then I was like, Oh, this is cool. Now everybody wants to be like us. And we were hated in school. You know what I mean? Right, like, <laughs> right, right, right. So it was so cool. And I'm so glad that, you're in our community. You're one of us. You're one of the VW guys. You know what I mean? Like no matter Thank how, you. no matter how fancy a Porsche you buy, you're just a VW guy to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and to some people, you know, that means more than anything else. Cause to me, I'd rather be known for, for my Volkswagens and that kind of stuff, because that, that whole thing just means it, it gives me that, that's that punk rock credit you're looking for. Like you're really one of us. Like you're just a you're just a basic, humble guy that can appreciate the most simple of cars. You know what I mean? Yeah. Thanks. It's it's a it is much more fun to be seen in an old VW than almost any other new funny fancy whatever car because it just represents. You know, it represents so much about a person to see them. You you can read. That guy's driving a, a 65 or a 55 or I don't care, you know, 75 Volkswagen. It says something about their mental state, their psychology. They, you know, they're not, they don't, they don't care what you think about them. They don't care that you, that, that you're driving a BMW. They don't care whatever. It's like you understand that that's a person you can probably relate to and yeah. it's going to be more fun. Um, yeah. No, that's no it. So I wanted to ask you one question from your design standpoint, right? And, and mm-hmm. your experience driving a new Beetle. What was your take on VW's design of the new Beetle? Because I've got my opinion. I'm just curious what your opinion was. 
Okay, so Freeman Thomas is a buddy of mine. Uh-huh. Um, and and uh, my bus, my, my, my ceiling wax red 23, uh, which I no longer own, uh, was in the VW design studio back, you know, when they were first redesigning the, the new VW bus, was now the ID, whatever it is, ID bus. Right. Um, it was in the Simi Valley studio back when they had a studio there. Um, so I had the, I was really interested in, in the, in the renaissance of the idea of the brand, because I thought I was thinking of the Doyle Dane and Burnback era. I was thinking of VW as what it was. Right. Uh, and, and, but what VW, what it is, uh, at least and was in, in or is in the 1990s when the car came out was that wasn't capable of meeting the expectations of what it was in the past. And they, they, they rode the coattails of the old car with this, you know, Mazda Miata sort of retro car, in my opinion. It's, it was, it was fun, but it was, it's just a cutesy little retro. I don't know how to, I, I can't put words to it, but it's like the little K cars from Japan, the, the um, Nissan Figaro or something that was yeah. really cute. And, you know, if you're, if you're a young female librarian, it's a fun car to drive around in and, and get seen with your Mickey Mouse and your eyelashes on the headlights and stuff. But the, but the new Beetle never had the soul. I mean, I can't quite peg down why. I, uh, it doesn't have, it broke down. I had to fix it. The electrical system didn't work. So there, there, there was all the challenges of, of an older car, except I couldn't fix it myself, but it was some box that I had to buy a relay or something to fix it. And I don't know. The soul, the soul wasn't there on the new Beetle. They tried really hard, but it never made it for me. Well, it was fun because I was a rock star driving the only one for a while. But right. after that, I was just I was just a librarian with the Mickey Mouse. You know, it wasn't it wasn't interesting anymore. And I think, you know, my standpoint was the version two of that car was so much better. The second generation of the new Beetle, like mm. I would actually mm. drive one of those. And I think that's where Volkswagen, I think that's where they need to focus their attention because the the air cooled enthusiast is such a brand loyalist. But if we don't, but we have to connect with the cars. And I was at the ID bus debut with my crew cab and I'm there and I'm looking at it and I'm just kind of looking this thing over and I'm thinking, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a automotive guy. I'll buy it. If it says something to me, I'm going to buy it. I looked at the new bus and I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to buy it just because it doesn't like, there's just gotta be something, something that brings it back to that humble punk rock kind of counter so the, the difference is the psychology they're saying the right words but the words and the packaging and the image don't all line up and when you're branding something there's this thing which is you're familiar with your corporate identity and yeah. corporate identity has to match across all fronts if your marketing is x your your design has to be x and your engineering behind the design has to also be x and if the engineering of the original car and the look of the original car and the words that came out of the marketing department on the original car all matched because it was around a subject of absolute simplicity, right? It was, that's one of the reasons I called my company simple, but it was just a great word. And, and they took something down to its rawest, barest essence, right? And there was no extemporaneous detail. There was no bud base on the dashboard. You know, it, it's, it's that was something you could add as an sure. accessory. Awesome. I mean, you could add whatever you want, but the original core, it's, it's just this, it's really hard for me to put words to it. I think we need to speak a different language or something, but the, the, the basic car 
just eked of, I can fix it myself. I can see that that's a lug nut. I can see that that's the carburetor. I can see all these different things. I mean, granted, all cars at that time did that, but this car was, you know, at a price point that nothing else was. It was a humble, inexpensive car aimed at every man without adding any ego to your life, without adding any psychology per se. Mm -hmm. You added your own psychology, but I think that the brand now is trying to riff on their old psychology rather than riffing on today. It's like for me, I would rather be driving, driving a, a car that's a modern, a golf or something that's more modern than a Beetle because a Beetle is riffing on something that, that it's not very successfully even riffing on it, the new Beetle. Right. Uh, and these, the, the ID Buzz is trying to riff on, they're showing surfboards on top and all this stuff. It's like, oh, come on, guys. Let's, let's, let's be in today's world with today's simple version. Uh, it's it's close, but it's just I think all the hands of the animal aren't talking to each other. All the all the divisions aren't working well, together. But to contrast it with like you look at Chevrolet with the Camaro, and you look at Dodge with their uh, Challenger. I mean, they're not having any problem connecting with their original fan the original fan base because they they captured the essence of the vehicle. And I thought to myself, you know, Volkswagen would have a their first mo their their first thing would have been basic and you can accessorize it to the end or option it out to nothing. But if it were basic and if it, if it shared some identity with the original, if they would have done rear engine, water cooled rear, something to make it more touch on utilitarian to some degree. You know what I mean? That's why I like the idea of the word standard, the standard model of the Volkswagen. That's what I was hoping that they would produce without the fluff. It was really a basic car. Right. Uh, and, and, and I think, and the color story is also, I think the way that the, the, the American car companies did capitalize because they have an enormous horsepower that matches at the, it's five times what the horsepower was back then, but back then what they had was five times what they had before. So the fact that you know a GTO of, of its era was amazing, and the new one, the new the new whatever it is, is is also amazing. And I just looked at one; it was like I think it was nine hundred horsepower. I forget what it was. Some <laughs> new insanity. some new Dodge. Yeah. The last year they're going to make, I think it's nine hundred horsepower. My friend across the street has a seven hundred horsepower Dodge truck. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's insanity, but. They're striking a chord with their with their customer base, and I, I just can't. And it bums me out because I love I love Volkswagen. I love at least my my old air cooled ones. I love uh, I loved what the brand stood for. And on top of that, you know, it's a brand that was so pivotal, right in the in the beginnings of Germany, and then through the allied forces was relaunched the brand to reestablish Germany after the second world war. And the number one country that purchased it was the people in the States. And it's like, so I, I feel like, again, like it's more of an American car, you know what I mean? Because it, it, it was mm -hmm. like, we're the mm -hmm. ones that put it on the map, but it became so much of a culture of the people that were counterculture. It was a counterculture car mm -hmm. when it was new. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And it was cool. The word cool is, yeah. is what we're missing. It was cool. And, and that word is really hard to define. And marketing has ripped off that word. And so what used to be cool was like beat culture, you know, and, and you were cool because you were down and out. You know, you were before hippies, you were you were a bum in the, in the, in the jazz, listening to jazz yeah. and hanging out with some girl in a turtleneck. And, and a cigarette on a holder and, and, uh, and then, and then cool somehow got usurped by 
uh, people like me with companies like Vision Streetwear could make into into something that was marketable and saleable and suddenly cool was something you had to go buy. And I think that Volkswagen didn't strive to be cool. Volkswagen just became cool because of its original uh, intent was was pure. And, and and I think that the problem is that that cool, you need to go back to the old school cool to make a cool thing. And the new cool thing is just because you've been told that it's cool because you read about it in some magazine. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting too esoteric. No, I, I, I agree. I just, I, I, like I said, I was just trying to understand and think to myself like, man, how, you know, because when I got there, I saw it. It was like, yeah, they made the front nose kind of look like the bus. It looks like your average everyday minivan. And I just kind of. It just, it, it, I just thought to myself, if they would have just come and said, let me get 50 people that are in the classic Volkswagens and have them tell me what they love about it and, and what, and they could probably spend substantially less money building a new model, make it for way less and sell millions more, mm -hmm. you know, cause it would resonate with so many more people. Now it's a $70,000, you know, minivan and it's like, good luck with that, you know? Yeah. You know, I look at cars. Like lately, there's some cars that interest me. The little tiny Ford um, pickup truck, the Maverick. Oh, the Maverick. If you, yeah. if you look at the steel, the steel wheeled version of the Maverick with the cloth interior, it's like, oh, that's kind of cool. You know, it's just just simple and basic. If 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 VW made like the you know the velvet green or the sea blue solid bus, a combi essentially, stripper interior with fiberboard panels in the back. And just had that nice motor and everything, yeah. but didn't talk about that and just made it like, just like the bus you would paint your logo on the side of if it were an old, an old, you know, panel van or something. And, and was, that would be, that would be pretty cool, but they get a little frou-frou with all the, this and that on top, on top, on top, more and more. They're, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I think I don't they're know. listening to too much marketing and not enough of their, their brand loyal base, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's what? funny how brand loyal we are. We, we we're still we're still loving them. What? No, we we do. And and so you know the craziest part is I wanted to buy I wanted to buy a Volkswagen for my wife for SUV because I had I had Chevrolets they drop like a rock and then I bought a Toyota because they hold their value so because now that we're responsible adults I'm like it holds its value it's super reliable and then when you you know I wanted to buy like a VW but I just couldn't find something in the platform that. Cause I'm a brand mm -hmm. guy. I'd love to have it, but it was like a too expensive compared to what I was getting from Japanese builders. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And I was like, eh, it's all right. It doesn't really strike a chord with, with me. And I don't know, uh, you know, maybe I'm longing for something that's just not going to exist. You know what I mean? Like, well, we're now, we're, we're now the, the good old days guys. <laughs> well, there's still, there's, you know, like you can for, I have friends. I have, I had Vanagans. I had a Doka, a beautiful Vanagon Doka. I love that truck. Um, it just, I just ended up selling it because someone offered me too much money for it. Right. And so I sold it, but, but uh, th those are still cool. You're actually just beginning to like Eurovans. Yeah. I think Eurovans are right at the na nadir right now. Like a Eurovan with a, with a Westy interior. Kind of, hmm. I'm just starting to think about it, you know, but it's been what 20 plus years. Yeah. So I, maybe it just has to do with time or something. I can't figure it out. Maybe. But they have, there are late model VWs in my mind, the Eurovans and so forth that are eh, still kind of cool. No, I dig them. I dig them. I did. A, I did a whole YouTube video on the T50s that they do in Europe. That these guys mm -hmm. in Europe have this whole counterculture with those things, and they're super rad. And they'd go on these trips and all kind of stuff. So yeah, no, it's it's great, man. Well, oh, I tell you, um, 
Eric, man, I appreciate your time for coming on the podcast, man. I think it's been it's been great. And uh, I definitely you're a wealth of knowledge and a, an unbelievable resource for counterculture things that were cool of my generation. So I, I hope this is not going to be the last time we're going to talk because I would love to uh, do some more um, some more in-depth discussions about some of the things and especially how they how they affected the culture of the time, you know, mm-hmm. Um I, I think that's a deeper rabbit hole. It, it is. It, you know, it, 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 like I said, I, I love the way this started because for V2B podcast, normally we just do like the guy's story. But what I loved about this one so much, there's all the layers of the culture that bring all this together from the music to the fashion. And for you um, being so involved on the front lines of that, of what was going on in my generation. And you're just a few short years older than me. So it's, it's kind of cool because we still connect on that level. And I'm super, I'm super stoked to be able to get you on the podcast, man. And I look forward to, I will get you back on when you get your beetle complete. I want to get you back on and we're going to, we're going to talk about the whole thing, the build process, everything that you learned about it and your personal feelings about it after you've actually put it on the road and, and what you think. So I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I'm, I'm looking forward to that, that conversation as well. Thanks for, thanks for all the time. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate it, brother. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that podcast because I sure did enjoy uh, getting that one down. I love when the conversation goes a little bit uh, around the culture and things that were happening at that time because it's so much of what we remember and who we were. And to get some insight to some of that I thought was pretty interesting. So hopefully you guys dug it. And and a lot of these cars he talked about, he brought right back to the forefront of what you guys remember seeing out there in the early days of the scene. But I'm excited uh, to bring you guys uh, Dave Kindig next week, man. So be ready and be on the lookout for the video as well. So that'll be on YouTube. But uh, don't forget, five-star reviews. And until next week, guys, later. You probably don't know that there's a new Volkswagen out that doesn't look like a Volkswagen. Like the bug likes.